0: The Cultists present
1: Cinema of Cruelty
0: And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, What happens when Edward Wood Jr. dies, still unappreciated for his pulpy B-rated efforts, leaving behind a final script? What happens if 20 years later, hot off that sweet titanic visibility, Billy Zane decides this movie simply must be made? What happens if that movie has no dialogue? What if the director is only thus far known for softcore Italian porn? What if they can still get Eartha Kitt to play a graveyard cult leader? Would all these extraordinary elements combine to turn the film into an instantaneous cult classic? Or would it fade into a tragically nearly lost film? Well, let's find out. Because today we are dashing through the wild landscape of Eris Elopoulos' 1998 offering of Ed Wood's I Woke Up Early the Day I Died so sit back and open your most sketchy torrent browsers as we take you through the tale of a film that is barely ever seen. Brought to you by the Soviet school of montage, the lumbering gate of a stiletto murder spree, the apathy of kleptomania, the time-honored career path of professional mourning, and the discordant sounds of the inner ear canal. And of course our safe word today is blockbuster. Anything to add, Benji?
1: Right, London, yes. Let's shoot this fucker. Come on! You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I
0: doubt your commitment to
1: sparkle motion! <laughs> <laughs> Hanja! <laughs> I see you shiver with antiso... Oh my god! <laughs> Disappointing! Hi, Mark.
0: Patient. Hi, London. Hey, Benji. I have a story about your name being Benji that I learned yesterday from a friend of ours.
1: What? Oh, God.
0: Yes, it's very exciting. <laughs> what is? So, that? Our, our dear friend Lena. Oh, she, Lena! Yay. Apparently, way back in the day, when I told her that I knew a boy named Benji. <laughs> me being the kind of person i am and having the friends that i do many of them that are puppy players and whatever within the scene i guess she assumed because your name is benji that you were an individual that liked to be a dog and be treated as a dog so she for years thought that you were a dog boy named benji and i think this is important
1: when did it occur to her that that's just not my bag
0: Oh, I've never corrected her on this. Oh, for God's sakes. So she probably <laughs> still does. I hope she still does. <laughs>
1: uh, 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 you know, perfectly healthy way of play, but yeah, not my thing. Uh, no, no, just Benji, because this one over here just has to assign bizarre nicknames to all of the people that she talks to, and mine happens to be a movie dog, which, you know, hey, that's that's fine. Maybe one day we'll do one of the Benji films just for kicks it's There's... also
0: just your name. Yeah. So this film, this glorious film oh, that we watched for today. This was never distributed. <laughs> Didn't make a single set.
1: Never distributed. I looked into the film I thought, "Whoa, this is insane. I need to find this movie." And you can't find this movie. This might be a sound like a strange metric, but if you go to IMDb and you type in a movie, you'll see its ratings uh, or like the number of times that people have gone on there to give it a like 1 out of 10 star rating. So if you go by, like, more mainstream films that we've done, like, well, The Exorcist that we just did, over 350,000 people have gone to IMDb and gave that a 1 out of 10. Uh, Showgirls, you get about 60,000 people. Don's Plum, which is probably the most obscure film that we've done, uh, less than 4,000 people have given that a 1 out of 10. But I Woke Up Early the Day I Died... Only 638 people have bothered to give this thing a rating. So this is our least known film by far.
0: Yeah, and most of the people who have rated this film or have anything to say about it are doing so because they have seen this film at one of the very few screenings that it had. Very few have been able to watch this outside of a screening. And this is because this film was never officially distributed. So let's get into this film a little bit. What is the backstory? So before we get into a lightning summary of what this film is even about, one of the most interesting things about this film is just its context. So where did this film come from?
1: Well, this film is one of the very last screenplays written by one very special Mr. Edward D. Wood Jr., And then I think we have to contextualize who is Edward D. Wood Jr., more popularly known as Ed Wood. Most people got to know Ed Wood because of a 1994 Tim Burton film, but he is the man often referred to as the worst filmmaker of all time. A very unfair label, I have to say. Ed Wood is not the worst filmmaker of all time by any stretch of the imagination, but his films were often shown on television as the cheesy sci-fi movies. Bill Lugosi was in a lot of them very late in his life. He's known for making Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is often called the worst film of all time. Again, not true at all. But after he passed away in 1978, he was given kind of a new posthumous fame through this book called the Golden Turkey Awards that called him the worst director of all time. And if you ever looked into it, the Golden Turkey Awards book, that's there's a lot of mean-spiritedness to, to books like that. That's not celebrating, like, artistic passion or creative passion, more just saying, like, oh, look at this guy. He made a crap movie.
0: Yeah, most awards that are based on the worst of are going to be mean-spirited by default. Yeah, really.
1: the Razzies come to mind a whole lot uh, with that, though even with the Razzies, they're just going for whatever's popular.
0: Yeah, and I think this came up on Battlefield Earth as well, where if this is the worst thing you've ever seen, you're not trying, (laughs) right? Because there are some really incompetent filmmakers out there, and those are generally the ones that just are never seen or talked about for very blasé reasons, which is just that they're not very good, they're not very interesting, there's really nothing there to sustain an audience's attention. The thing about Ed Wood is that he did make some choices in his films that are baffling to the mind there are other choices that he made because of his limitations and his resources as a filmmaker so special effects for example it is hard to do special effects on a very low budget with the exception of some horror stuff this is why horror films can be really great low budget things because it's not that hard to produce like guts and blood but to make a saucer fly, you need a lot of stuff right. that Edwood didn't have. So he's infamous for having these shots that he'd just have these little teacups basically on a string in front of a piece of cardboard and he would just fly that little stringed teacup across his little cardboard backdrop and he's like good enough.
1: Yep. <laughs> if you look into the way that Edwood shot his films, he was making these things in a matter of days. And so they never had time to slow down and like really craft a shot or a special effect like that in rudolph gray's book nightmare of ecstasy there are sections that he unearths like memos of ed woods where he's detailing the shooting schedule for his films and he gives like a three-day schedule to shoot a film and it's absolutely insane how many shots he was packing into that thing Even in Tim Burton's Ed Wood, there's a moment where Bella Lugosi is having a a dramatic moment, like, self-reflecting, and uh, Ed Wood, as played by Johnny Depp, pops up and says, "Uh, Bella, we have 27 scenes to shoot tonight. We need to move it along. Like, right, Eddie, right. Let's shoot this fucker. Come on.
0: Yeah. So he would shoot fast. He would do it on low budgets. He was also infamous for putting a lot of stock footage into things, and that's going to come up again as we go through this movie. Mm -hmm. But... Not even just stock footage, very curious selections of stock footage. So the two usually go-to examples is that he found stock footage of an octopus. And so he's like, all right, well, obviously we need to use the stock footage of an octopus and then match cut it with Bela Lugosi wrestling these arms of an octopus (laughs) in a graveyard somewhere. Because of course this octopus is just going to be in a graveyard, right? The continuity of his films are just notoriously non-existent. There is another shot in one of his films where it dissolve fades into a herd of buffalo. I think that's in Glen or Glenda. Glen or Glenda. Where Bela Lugosi's face is just suspended over this herd of buffalo. There are no buffalo in Glen of Glenda. No. It's just to make it seem more grandiose and epic to have these buffalo running through a field. And this is why Ed Wood really resonates with a certain audience because there's just this joy in anticipating what Ed Wood is going to throw at you next. And it's never what you think it's going to be. And that's something joyous, or there's something joyous about that. Unfortunately, Ed Wood is yet another one of those artistic, creative individuals that died unappreciated in his time. So Ed Wood is going to die in 1978. He's going to do so poor, living, living in a friend's house after becoming so poor that he lost access to his own house and apartment. Both him and his wife, I think we're staying with a friend at the time. Mm-hmm. He was severely depressed at the end of his career. And so there's something very sad and tragic about that. And he had this script, this script called I Woke Up Early the Day I Died, that he had been trying to get made and nobody wanted it. And so 20 years later, His wife is going to sell the rights to a young Italian director and Billy Zane is going to get involved with this project and he's going to produce it. He's going to star in it and he's going to promote it. And somehow they're also just going to get a bunch of celebrities to just make cameos in this film. And so there's just this astounding build happening in 1998 among people who are starting to rediscover and appreciate Ed Wood's films. Unfortunately, they were on the early wave of that. Ed Wood still wasn't quite celebrated. He didn't have the cult support yet fully formed in the way. So when this screened at the Toronto Film Festival, not a single American distribution company wanted it. They screen it to an audience and nobody wants it. Damn. Which is astounding, because you would think that, well, Ed Wood was starting to become a thing again. Wouldn't you want the last Ed Wood script? You've got Billy Zane in it. You also have, let's see, the cast list here.
1: Oh, the cast list is all of the people. It's insane. Uh, Christina Ricci shows up. John Ritter's there. Ron Perlman is in the thing at some point or another. The giant from Twin Peaks is in this movie. Also known yes. as Lurch from The Adams Family. Uh, so many actors who were big in 1998, like, appeared in this thing, maybe for one or two scenes, sure. But still, you're like, whoa! Hi! Hi there! And some actors who were not even, like, very well-known quite yet. I believe Tara Reed shows up a number of times in this movie.
0: Yeah, I have the cast list right here, okay. so we'll just go through it real yeah, quick. So we've got.
1: take me through it.
0: Billy Zane... Ron Perlman, Tippi Hedren, Andrew McCarthy, Will Patton, Carl Strucken, Max Perlich, John Ritter, Karen Black, Sandra Bernhardt, Ertha Kitt, Anne Magnuson, Christina Ricci, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, what? Michael Green, Roberta Hanley, Rain Phoenix and Summer Phoenix, so Joaquin Phoenix's sisters, Tara Reid, Rick Schroeder, Nicolette Sheridan... And Steven Weber. Also, Leif Garrett and Dana Goulds, and Michael Haggerty are going to make appearances in this, Get as is Bud Court.
1: Get them all in there.
0: Yeah, so that's just like, it's a crazy list. It's, <laughs> like, uh,
1: I forget, I don't know if you mentioned her in that list. Uh, Malia Nurmi, who played Vampira back in the day on Planet of Matters Space, appears in this film, and it is her last film appearance ever.
0: Yeah, so. We were getting a lot of people who either had previously worked with Ed Wood or were Ed Wood fans, I think is how we sort of get this just list of people that wanted to pop in and do cameos. And so with this list of people, and with this being Ed Wood's last screenplay, it's astounding to me that no production companies wanted it. But none did. The production company at the time was shopping it around a little bit, but then they ran into money troubles and they shut down. And apparently this movie got tied up in legal fees and legal issues, and so it was never able to get distributed. The exception or why we're still able to find copies of it still is somehow a copy of the Toronto Film Festival screening ended up on DVD in Germany.
1: (laughs) You know, they just took it across the street from Toronto to Berlin and and made a copy of it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I have no idea exactly how this works, but like because it ended up in Germany, there was some slight circulation, but never officially... I don't know if it was ever sort of legally distributed in Germany or if it was just underground DVD copies. Mm -hmm. Then a couple of years later, when people started uploading digital copies onto torrent sites, you can occasionally find digital copies of this thing. But yeah, that is the only way.
1: And I want to point out, I couldn't even get this thing on a torrent site when I began searching for it. I had to search like through the third page of Google results until I found a website that said it had copies of the film and I checked it out and they had options to mail you a DVD-R which could take two weeks or you could get just a digital download of it, which you would have in three days. So I went with the, the quicker option, and, <laughs> yeah, there is the film. And I'm still not sure if that was a legal means of getting the film or what the deal there was. I I don't know. Um, one final thing, though, I do, I do want to point out about the screenplay to this and why this screenplay is so special and why we really need to appreciate more that this exists. Very late in Ledwood's life, uh, when he was living at that apartment he was kicked out of, he had been writing other screenplays and also books for many years. He was actually a very prolific writer of pulp fiction novels.
0: Pulp erotic novels. Pulp erotic yeah,
1: Oh boy. By the way, yeah, fuck those, yeah. Those were those were wild. It's estimated he wrote like seventy-five of those books and made decent money from it, but his uh output had kind of dwindled due to his alcoholism, very unfortunate. And later in his life, when his wife and he were kicked out of this apartment, it all happened very quickly, but the landlords came to Edward's apartment. Banged on the door and said, "You've got to get out right now." He's like, well, "Can I pack? Can I take all my my stuff, my notes and my papers?" And he says, "No, no, no. Here's a, here's a suitcase. Whatever you can fit in that suitcase, you can take. But otherwise, you got to go right, goddamn now." And so, because of this, Edward lost like a manuscript he had been working on on the life of Bela Lugosi, uh, some other screenplays, and possibly some other manuscripts for books. He was only able to take two things with him, and he took an Angora sweater that he really loved and this screenplay. Wow. <laughs> so That's amazing. There is a wealth of work of Ed Woods that has been lost to time because of this like landlord shakedown that happened. But because he loved this screenplay so much, he kept it. And because he kept it, his widow Kathy Wood held on to it for all those years, and then finally in 1998, we got to see it. So this is a movie that eked its way through adversity to reach us.
0: Yes. That's incredible. And it's so sad, then, that this has not been released. I guess that being said, what is the best thing about this film?
1: The best thing about this film is what... An incredible and unique tribute it is to Ed Wood and his love of filmmaking, his, like, passion for storytelling against all odds. Obviously, they had more time to make this film than Ed Wood ever did. Uh, I think the shooting schedule for this film was something like 30 days. But they still got, like, the hyper-kinetic style of Ed Wood's films and just that... What are, What is happening? What is this movie going to throw at me next? Like, that vibe. I think this movie does such a great job of recreating the feeling of watching an Ed Wood movie for the first time.
0: I agree that the best thing about this film is just its tone on both ends, in terms of where it feels like Ed Wood and also the places where it feels like something different and new. It is unlike many films I've ever seen. <laughs> there's something very unique about this film, yes. and that's great. Yes. Because I was really expecting the fact that no American production companies wanted to distribute this film, is given the cast list. Yeah, there's
1: so much star power behind this thing.
0: Yeah, so I was expecting going in that this movie was going to be really bad in that regard, right? in that case, I guess. Like, you have all of these reasons to release it. Why wouldn't you? And so I was prepared for something terrible. And it was not terrible at all. It was it was great. And so that in itself was super fun. And then of course Billy Zane. Billy, Billy Zane is another just best. Billy thing about goddamn this movie.
1: Zane. My God. She's so great.
0: What is the worst thing about this film? Worst
1: thing is that no one can see it. That's the worst thing about this film is like its lack of distribution. That overpowers any nitpicks I might have with the movie itself. I mean, there are some things in the movie that I I remember thinking to myself, oh, they could have done this differently or they could have done something to to that gag. But that's like, that's nothing. That's peanuts compared to the fact that no one can see this film.
0: Yeah, no. 100% worst thing about this film is that it was never distributed. Right on. So, all right. What is this film, Lightning Summary?
1: All right, Lightning Summary. An escaped mental patient uh, leaves his sanitarium, goes on a bank robbery, and then, when hiding the money, loses his money, thinks he knows who may have taken it, and decides to hunt them down, and Billy goddamn Zane goes on a goddamn killing spree in this thing.
0: Yeah, he does. Also, they're cultists. <laughs> Super important. We kind of an, like
1: cultists here on Cinema Cruelty. There's a
0: graveyard occult subplot. So, yeah, everything about that is just great. So great.
1: Oh. All right. Okay, well, it's time, London. It's time to put on our swing trunks and do that deep dive that we we do so well.
0: Sure. At least I do well. Oh. You're there, you know.
1: I throw you life preservers so many times. (laughs) Uh
0: Uh-huh. Speaking of life preservers, our director.
1: I'm going to screw up his name if I try to pronounce it. Go for it.
0: I think it's Eris Iliopoulos.
1: I think I put his name into a how do you pronounce this website, and it came up with something pretty similar, so I believe that's what it is. He's an Italian filmmaker?
0: As far as I can discern, he seems to be an Italian individual who prior to working on this film as the director, had one other screen credit to his name, and that was actually 12 years prior to this movie.
1: Wow. A little
0: 1986 film called Manhattan Gigolo. And Manhattan Gigolo tells the story of Johnny and Rudy, two Italian boys who go to America and meet a beautiful model who both of them start a relationship with. So they have this little kind of like threesome trio thing going. And then as far as I can tell, they just have a whole bunch of sex. Oh, as you do. What was interesting, though, about the clips of Manhattan Gigolo that I watched was how much of it didn't have dialogue,
1: because Ah. I don't think we've
0: really fully stressed the fact that I woke up early the day I died also (laughs) is not going to have any dialogue.
1: Not not just like minimal dialogue or limited dialogue. There is no dialogue in this movie at all. The only time verbalized words are heard is during Earth the Kitts number and maybe some words from the television and the stock footage, but no on-screen character says any actual words.
0: Yeah, and that was Ed Wood's intention, yes. which Ed Wood, not a silent film guy. All of his other films, as far as I know. Have dialogue. All the ones I've seen have dialogue. All the
1: mainstream ones, yes. Rudolph Gray's book does go into some detail about how some of his early films, like even prior to Glenn or Glinda, shorter films that he did were silent films, but they were very experimental and Mm -hmm. not meant for wide distribution, more like just kind of art stuff that he was trying Mm -hmm. out prior to that shot on like cheaper stock, like 16 or 8 millimeter.
0: So that was interesting to me because I assumed that perhaps he just wrote his dialogue last In scripts, and this one just wasn't completed, but you came across information that it was always intended to be a silent film, Uh, correct?
1: Yes. From what I could see, it was inspired by an earlier film called The Thief from the 1950s. I forget the exact year, but that movie itself, it had limited dialogue, but it was mostly dialogue free, but did have some characters talking. So I think Ed Wood had seen that film at some point and said to himself, "Uh, you know what? I'm going to do this one better. I'm going to have... No dialogue at all in my movie. This one's got like a scene of dialogue. Me? No, no, no. We're going to do a whole movie without dialogue. And it's it's not that everything is muted. It's just a movie where characters never choose to say anything. They communicate more by grunting or wild gestures or they speak off-screen or very quietly to each other. So it's actually fascinating to watch the ways in which we are denied dialogue in this film.
0: Yeah, so it has a very silent film-era feel to it and the performance and whatnot. I will get into that in just a second because there is one more note, I believe, on our director. Because after he directed this movie, he seemed to vanish from the film scene.
1: Yeah, I looked him up and I'm pretty sure I found a website for the same guy because the website mentions this movie. And as according to that, after this film, he got into photography. Most recently, report on his website, he does portraits primarily of Ma'ai tribesmen in Kenya. Like, that's his area of expertise. And that's what he does these days.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. So, this guy, yeah, has just kind of shifted through some different artistic careers. Hey, I
1: mean, props to him. That sounds pretty cool. And that's an awesome field to be in right now.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. It's just. He fascinates me because of how little I could find on
1: him. (laughs) Nowadays, you can find out so much about people, more than you probably want them to. Like, I think we could probably find out a lot about each other online. I don't want to, though. I don't want to know anything more about you. And yet the information's out there, I bet.
0: Maybe. I don't know. You'll have to try. I'm not going to. yeah, the fact that he is this Italian writer and director, I think, lent a very interesting sensibility to the silent film component because there already is going to be this exchange or difference with language. So if he's used to writing Italian screenplays, but then directing for a more globalized audience, there's something really interesting about just the universal accessibility of body language. And that did come through a little bit in Manhattan Gigolo, which seemed to be hoping to garner a larger audience than just an Italian one. Mm. So there's a lot Of minimal use of dialogue in that film and it seems so yeah I I could see where he's a well suited director coming from more of an international film background to direct this Ed Wood film and now we get into the credits of this
1: oh the credits are so fucking punk
0: they really are. They're super great. The
1: song playing over this is like this this hardcore punk song called Jesus, I Was Evil. It's like just the singer, Jesus, I was evil, Jesus, I was evil. And we have snapshots of all of our characters kind of moving across the screen. Kind of remind me of the Monty Python animations on Flying <laughs> Circus, the stuff that Terry Gilliam did back in the day. Just like a more grungy, dirty version of that.
0: Yes, they're using, so Terry Gilliam actually also used this type of animation. So this animation style is called cutout animation. It's in principle very similar to stop motion, but stop motion is going to be three dimensions where you have little models and you get a shot and then you move them and you get another shot cutout animation is going to be what stop motion is in two dimensions so it's when you have different pieces of paper or Mm. photos that are cut out and then moved and you get another shot and so that's what we're we're getting here is just photograph cutout animation of all of our casts and it looks great it looks very cool it looks very punk and then what comes next
1: Uh, The most cruel thing about this film, when we we've often talked about this, how a film is cruel in the cinema of cruelty based on the theater of cruelty, when it reminds you of the artifice of filmmaking. And often you've said that a film is cruel for you when there are a lot of practical effects like an exorcist or other films where you are aware of them because you work in that. But the average moviegoer might not be. But this, no matter who you are, you are reminded of the elements of filmmaking because the screenplay is now going to appear before us, being typed out, saying interior, day, hospital room. We hear someone crying out for help. The script that Edward wrote begins to appear on the actual screen of the movie. So it is reminding you. This is based on a screenplay. This is based on a screenplay that Ed Wood wrote. It really wants you to know that. So that's the, a very cruel aspect of the film. Uh, remind you of the artifice of filmmaking there.
0: And it's so cool because we get to see Ed Wood's own words yeah. in terms of his cues and how he's sort of thinking of framing the scene. And so we did take careful notes of what each of those insert title cards are. And so we will provide those throughout so we will also say that we will dwell a little bit more on some of the plot points here than we have been of late just because this movie is so inaccessible that it might be one of the ways to experience the film hopefully
1: what's happening in in this first scene is that someone is tied down in a bed it looks like a nurse and it seems like she's tied down by another nurse and a needle is going into her arm
0: yes and the arm that it is going into,
1: oh, <laughs> it looks a little looks a little strange. London, can you tell me why that the arm looks strange?
0: Oh, this this effect. <laughs> All right, so it seems like they have just built a quote unquote body part to get this close up insert shot. Although it's very ambiguous what body part it is, <laughs> um, and that's part of the issue is that it just looks like this block of plaster and wax and clay types of molding materials Mm. and so it just it does not look like human skin it is not going to be the coloring of the skin that matches the actress because it looks still very waxen and clay it's the putty type of stuff that was used a lot in 90s special effects but not usually to this (laughs)
1: egregiousness and it's moments like this that occur throughout the movie that I wonder is this just a a bad special effect or is it a a deliberate choice which is in itself is a tribute to Ed Wood because Ed Wood's films there's not a single special effect in any of his films that's convincing or that tricks you into thinking like you're seeing something You're always aware of the attempts at special effects in his films, so I have to wonder, was this just a rush job, or was this their own artistic way of saying, yeah, this is what Ed Wood's films were like. It was all so obvious what was going on.
0: Oh, 100%, I would say that it was on purpose. Okay, good. Because it's going to take its own time, actually, to build up something with this much putty on it. Mm They are putting in the time to make this effect look like it does. The needle that they're using as well is going to be really long and flimsy and flexible, and it's just wiggling (laughs) back and forth as it's trying to get shoved into this putty and hard plaster, and little beads of water are dripping out of it, and there's a lot of air bubbles in that needle, and you're like, goddamn, like, if whatever that liquid is that's going in there isn't going to kill this person, those air bubbles definitely (laughs) are.
1: Oh, oof.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a way to open a film, right? Because there are a lot of people that do get unnerved by needles and injections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it already is going to be a little bit gross in a way that a lot of 60s horror actually looks. Dario Argento is going to use a lot of things like this, and Carnival of Souls kind of uses a couple of things like this. So yeah, it's reminiscent of a certain particular era, which was actually Ed Wood's era in and of itself. And then we're going to draw back so that we can see more of a wide shot of what is happening here, and it is someone dressed in a nurse's outfit bending over another nurse who's been tied with medical tubes on the table and and she's struggling Mm -hmm. and then we go into kaleidoscope vision we
1: get her point of view and the kaleidoscope vision is meant to show us that her vision is obviously beginning to mess up and i love shots like these because kaleidoscope vision It seems like it would be really tricky, but it's actually quite brilliantly simple because you just take a large kaleidoscope, tape it over your lens, focus, you know, for the vision and then turn the kaleidoscope and boom, kaleidoscope vision. Bob's your uncle. Which is crazy. I know. It's <laughs> Really, the trick is just finding a kaleidoscope big enough to make that happen, to fit over a film lens, because most kaleidoscopes are just made to fit over your eye, and that's a very small diameter. So you just got to find a bigger one and tape it over the lens, and there you go.
0: I can't remember an instance of Ed Wood using kaleidoscope vision.
1: Yeah. I, I think there are a few things throughout the film that are off the beaten path for Ed Wood, or not necessarily a trip to Ed Wood, but just more to the... Odd. Hmm. I don't really know if you want to call it psychedelic uh, aspect of Ed because Edwood's films weren't terribly psychedelic, so to speak. Except for when
0: Billy Lugosi wrestles with an octopus. <laughs> 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 That's a drug trip in and of itself. Let's shoot this fucker! But, yeah, so I'm just pointing out where there are things that are Ed Wood- homages versus things that kind of make this movie uniquely its own thing as well. Right on, so yeah. I think it's an interesting exercise to kind of point out one way or the other. And yeah, I don't really remember the kaleidoscope thing being an Ed Wood thing, which was an element to me that made this movie... Yeah, fall into right. the unique category in this. Well, system. I think
1: well, this film being in color itself is a, a unique also aspect. Because Ed Wood, aside from his very later softcore films, Necromania, Take It Out and Trade, all of his films were in black and white.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and had dialogues. And that
1: too, <laughs> yes. So, but then, so the nurse is dying. So the nurse who held her down seeing that the job is done, begins to walk out of the room. The door is open, and oh my God, it's goddamn Billy Zane in this nurse outfit.
0: Fuck yeah, it is. Well, at first, as this nurse is walking out the door, you can tell that this person is not used to walking in these high heels. Yeah,
1: wobbling a little bit. It's very stilted walking. So, yeah, they're clearly not used to high heels, which is our first hint that something is awry.
0: So we're just getting the back shots of this nurse walking out of these doors until we get the front shot of these double doors as Billy Zane pushes those doors open with both hands spread wide and we get an epic shot of him just hanging out in this doorway with an eschewed blonde wig and this crazy look in his eye. Oh, it's so great. This is the first image I saw of this film. So initially, I had been going through (laughs) Billy Zane's IMDb page, just looking for more Billy Zane stuff to watch, right?
1: Who doesn't want more Billy Zane?
0: Yeah, there's just not enough Billy Zane stuff to watch. There just never will be. And I came across this movie title that I hadn't heard before. I was like, this is kind of an intriguing title. I woke up early the day I died. What the fuck? So I click on it. And the picture that comes up for this movie was this image right here of him him just
1: pushing open the double doors,
0: pushing open the double doors with that look on his face Mm -hmm. and the wig and that turquoise atmosphere behind him. And I'm like, I need to see this movie. <laughs> I must find it, which is what led, well, kind of both of us down this crazy journey of figuring out how hard this movie was to find, because <laughs> I thought I would just be able to look it up and that'd be fine. It seems like but we're no. saying
1: that a whole lot, but we really cannot stress how impossible it is to get this film, right? Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so, yes, he's going to continue out the rest of the way, and we will learn that... He is indeed a sanatorium patient that has killed a couple of the nurses to make his way out and somehow stolen their outfit to escape. And the outfits of the nurses apparently include these blonde wigs. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of love that. Yeah. And it's not just confirmed with the fact that Billy Zane somehow managed to find a blonde wig within the sanatorium. The nurse that we see him killing is also wearing an identical blonde wig. So this is apparently part of the nurse's (laughs) uniform at the sanatorium. (laughs) Which is wonderful and weird. And we're like, we're just going to go with it. This is another element that's very heavily Ed Wood. So now we've got the Ed Wood coming back is this performativity of drag in some kind of capacity. And I
1: don't think we've mentioned this yet. Yeah, Ed Wood, I mean, the most famous thing about him is that he made these crazy movies and that Ed Wood loved wearing women's clothing.
0: Yes, and it was not as far as we can understand now, because, of course, the language is going to be very different in the 1960s when Ed Wood was expressing himself, but... For him, it does seem to be more of a comfort and drag performativity thing. So it was not a gender expression, necessarily. He identified, as far as I know, I don't want to map anything onto his identity, but he identified publicly as a cisgendered man and heterosexual Mm. who really loved this sort of act of drag and cross-dressing and performativity. And that is going to get incorporated into a ton of Ed Wood's films. There's often at least one individual or instance of cross-dressing or at the time transvestitism um, is the word that's going to crop up a lot in Ed Wood's stuff. So we already get that right here. I'm like, yep, Ed Wood's screenplay. Uh, (laughs) You see it. And what
1: I love here is that when I first heard that it's a cross-dressing nurse who escapes a sanatorium, I thought, Oh, it's cross-dressing because it's Ed Wood, so it's a tribute to Ed Wood. But then you have to remind yourself, it's not a tribute to Ed Wood. This is just what Ed Wood wrote. It was his choice to have this nurse appear for one scene, or this guy dressed as a nurse for this one scene, and then after that he'll change outfits. But he starts off in drag in this opening scene, and that's just what Ed Wood wanted. So, yeah, yeah, I just think it's interesting to... It's hard to call this a tribute to Ed Wood because it's just an Ed Wood film.
0: Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Billy Zane's going to make his way out of this hospital that is protected by a chain link fence that he's just (laughs) going to be able to kick through with his high heels. And we're going to watch him walk down the street, once again, really struggling in these high heel shoes. So it's very clear that Billy Zane, in his theatrical career, has not had to put on a lot of high
1: heels. (laughs) Which is a
0: shame, because he looks really great in high heels, and I really think he should do it more often. Okay,
1: fair enough, fair enough. I, I won't deny. I won't deny you that.
0: There's a certain kind of high heel... Walk that people do if they're not used to wearing them where just the calves themselves are just kind of quivering and wobbling a little bit just trying to I, yeah, counterbalance. <laughs> I have and tried so, wearing
1: heels a few times myself and that's probably how I look too because it's like uh, uh,
0: Yeah, so you could just tell right within the muscle memory of his legs yeah. that they are struggling but he's powering through. It's it's not something that you can really affect acting-wise in the body, right? That just muscle fatigue that's happening yeah. and so he's going to walk down the street, he's gonna make his escape, come across some clothes lines of clothes that he's gonna pull off some pants, pull off a shirt, put them on. Sure. So he's just acquiring new outfits. Very quickly. He he's goes. already
1: left the nurse outfit and the wig behind, and now he's walking along, and it's suddenly night. Get used to a lot of like quick shifts from day to night in this movie, which I think in itself is a tribute to Ed Wood, because that happened a lot in his films. Infamously, Plan 9 bounces back and forth between day and night almost constantly. Uh, But he comes across this outdoor uh, thrift clothing store and picks out quickly a jacket, some flat shoes for himself and grabs them and uh, begins to walk away. The owner comes out briefly and looks around for him, doesn't see him, but notices some heels have been left on the, the clothes hanger or the clothing rack takes the heels and he looks around carefully to make sure no one's watching him and then begins to sniff them. Yeah, he does. I'm like, man, you don't have to look. You Don't be ashamed. That's a perfectly healthy fetish. That's fine. He then appears aroused and walks back inside, but also grabs a mannequin on the way in to do something too. And then I'm like, okay, that that seems dangerous. What seems know.
0: dangerous about doing a mannequin? Splinters. Is it a wood mannequin? Because <laughs> if it's plastic, you're all good. That's fine. That's fine. But
1: uh, So, London, this outfit that Billy Zane takes and puts on.
0: Oh, my God, this outfit. So, this outfit. This outfit fits Billy Zane perfectly, which is amazing and awesome because he just pulled these random clothes off of a clothesline <laughs> and then just grabbed a random pair of That's shoes. That's very lucky, yeah he found at a thrift store. And they're gonna be some tailored pants that are, when you get close up, you realize they're a tweed plaid type of print. And they're gonna have a little bit of a bell-bottom flare. And then he's gonna have this crisp white shirt. And this shirt is gonna stay impeccably white throughout the entire film as he goes racing through the city, rolling through grave dirt sleeping on scaffolding. This shirt is gonna remain pristine and it's great. And it's got those really amazing long sleeves where the cuff is extra long and they kind of go over his knuckles a little bit and it's super, super attractive. And then he's going to wear this blazer on top of it that he stole from the thrift store, also really tailor-made to the body. So it's this really cool combination of 60s, prints and fabric styles, but tailored in a very 90s way. Mm -hmm. So it's a very cool combination.
1: The Thief, which is this character's credited name, The Thief, and I think in the script that appears on screen, we do see him called The Thief, runs down alley, he suits up, and suddenly some tires are squealing around him, and he begins to freak out. And this is where we get some stock footage all of a sudden, which is this appears to be this very old educational film, black and white, that just the narrator is saying, In this film, we shall discuss how sound waves are transformed into vibrations in our ear to create the sensation of hearing. And we have, like, these very old animations of sound waves going and hitting, like, a cartoon diagram of an ear. Uh, And it's, again, this is what Edward did. He used stock footage all the time, but this movie is making that stock footage so obvious that it's calling attention to itself, which I think is another wonderfully cruel thing about this film.
0: And I absolutely love educational stock video footage from the 1950s and 60s. I love it so much, and it's used so often in this film, and that makes me really happy. And at first you're like, okay, this ear thing came out of nowhere. Like, <laughs> why are we learning about the inner workings of the ear? And we're going to find out pretty quickly because it's going to cut to poor Billy Zane and this discordant sound that he's apparently hearing from somewhere. And he's
1: clutching his ears like, ah, ah, ah! And we, we do hear Billy Zane, like, grunt and groan and scream in this movie. Again, just no words.
0: And... This music is going to come over the speakers.
1: The Jesus I was evil song comes up again. Look up that song if you can, folks. It's pretty crazy.
0: And it's just going to be this mash of stuff, and it filters in in a way that should be extra diegetic. But he does seem to crumple in on himself in a way that this might be the sound that he's hearing. I'm not really sure there. It's kind of a cool, weird thing mm-hmm. where it's like he hears sounds, so he might be hearing his own inner monologue. And we're also kind of getting the sense that Billy Zane, a.k.a. The Thief, might have some issues with hearing. Not that he's deaf, more that he hears constant sounds that are going to barrage him mm-hmm. in a sort of tinnitus kind of way.
1: Well, tinnitus is the just the ringing of the ears, right? Like you're always hearing that like sound going on.
0: Yeah, often, so it can have the ringing, buzzing, clicking, grinding. There are different kind of auditory sounds that tinnitus can produce. And there are two kinds of tinnitus. The subjective tinnitus, where only the individual can hear the sound. This is going to be the most common type, generally caused by some type of ear problems, either in the nerves or with injuries and whatnot. Then there's a very rare type of tinnitus, which I find fascinating, which is objective tinnitus and that other people can hear as well if they get really close to the ear. That's generally a blood vessel problem caused by the bones in the middle ear where they experience these muscle contractions around them, so it actually does create that grinding sound that other people can auditorily hear as well, but it does constantly create that grinding sound in the inner space, in the inner cavity of the individual's ear. So both tinnituses are just terrible things to deal with, but that does seem to be maybe what he's experiencing is these discordant sounds that are constantly plaguing him.
1: And in the midst of uh, his convulsions, he knocks over an old woman and some trash cans, uh, and they play different takes of that action, I think two or three times. And I'm like, yeah, okay cool, I'm into this. That's definitely not something Ed would, would have done. So that is another little aspect that makes this film unique unto itself.
0: And then he's going to sit down for a hot dog. Yeah,
1: like, as you do, you know. He, I love that, yes, uh, we have some stock footage of the city, and then he sits down at a hot dog stand, and he, he treats it like he's just sitting down at a restaurant, because he sits down, takes a napkin out, neatly tucks the napkin into his head, gets a hot dog with some mustard, and begins just chowing down on that. And the... Man who's running the hot dog stand writes something on a ticket and hands it to him. And now we have some of the script pop up on screen again that says, Close shot. Insert. Tab check. 45 cents. Is scrawled in pencil on the check. Now it says this. If a script says this, if you're making a movie from that script, you would show that insert shot. But we don't. We have (laughs) Billy Zane reacting to the ticket. So in a way, it's a substitution
0: yeah, for the insert shot. The
1: script note, the script element saying to have an insert shot is the substitution for an actual insert shot. <laughs> There's something so like paradoxical about that. I love it. It's so strange.
0: I Yeah, I loved it too. And so since this is the first one we get, which, by the way, is labeled as shot 14 yeah
1: that's interesting. like as we'll go along the numbers keep getting higher and higher and i don't think that these are meant to be scene numbers they're meant to be shot numbers so these are all the, the shots that we're supposed to be doing
0: which for those who are not familiar with scripts is not the way that scripts usually work yeah
1: yeah you you have scene numbers in the script and then shot numbers are typically established during production like when you're working out a shooting schedule
0: Yes yeah, so we'll we'll point out these shot numbers along the way, but this is apparently shot fourteen, so up until here, apparently, there's only been fourteen or thirteen other shot cues, so just remember yeah. that just keep That's that in your mind strange <laughs> and yes, we have this insert shot. Indicated, so I'm thinking, okay, is this what we're gonna do then is we're just going to for some reason not do insert shots anymore And we're just gonna cue them this way and let people know like no, we're just gonna But no, this is the only one I think that's like this that functions in this way of being Mm -hmm. a insert shot cue and then not having an insert shot and it wouldn't have been a hard thing to get an insert shot for 45 cents, but whatever (laughs) We get what we need to get, I guess
1: the thief runs off because he doesn't want to pay 45 cents. The thief cents. is
0: like, nah, I don't have money. Yeah. I, I can't pay you for this hot dog. But it was just fascinating watching him sit down for a hot dog. Like, he takes out his little napkin yeah. and he puts his little collar. <laughs> and there's just this seat at this outdoor hot dog stand.
1: Yeah, you don't normally sit down at a hot dog stand. <laughs> that was the strange thing to me. And Bill, and in this saying, this is like where you really get a sense for like Billy Zane's almost silent film-style acting. I don't really want to call it mugging, but he's super expressive. The way he arches his eyebrows so often, or, like, just he'll look down, he'll smile up at the hot dog guy. He's always in motion, but never overdoing it, I guess, is a, a way of looking at it.
0: Oh, that's right. So in the 1920s, during the height of the silent film era, there developed, actually, a discussion We'll say it was really very heated debate, considering the topic didn't really need to be heated, but whatever. So we'll call it a discussion. is
1: how any topic of entertainment or the arts will go, I think.
0: Right? About whether or not silent era acting should be subtle or exaggerated. And there were two schools of thought on this. There was the realism angle in which acting for the silent screen should maintain that sense of realism and this is going to derive out of the theater subset so theater was really popular before the silent era and realism is going to be a big thing in american theater and so in american silent films as they started they weren't very well respected first of all but then there still is also this push to keep a very realistic style of acting and this is going to contrast to the european style of silent era films which are really going to come out of and or be super influenced by the expressionism mm-hmm. that's happening in filmmaking at the time, particularly German expressionism. Sure. We've brought up The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari so many times that now. That
1: guy had one hell of a cabinet.
0: And Faust and whatnot. But it's really out of films like these that have these really amazing, exaggerated sets that an exaggerated style of acting really just fits the atmosphere of an expressionistic films in a way that feels oddly natural to the space. And so we get the exaggerated sense of silent era acting out of expressionism, and we get the realism style out of transferred American theater. And that's going to sort of war and rage between each other for a little while. But what's really cool here in this film is that we're tapping into some of those expressionism types of silent acting, and yet we're putting it in a realism landscape. Mm-hmm. And that's going to create a very curious juxtaposition where we're really going to notice both Billy Zane and then everybody else's exaggerated and expressionist type of silent acting, but set against hot dog stands. <laughs> <laughs> and it's spectacular. What,
1: everything that she just said, sum it up by the thing he's doing, it works. Just yes. There you go. Right it there.
0: It, it does. So, so much. It's
1: so good. But at, at any rate, yes, Billy Jane very spastically does not want to pay 45 cents for a hot dog. And so he gets the fuck out of there. Well,
0: he also doesn't have 45. Well, this cents is true. Yes. Dog, he just escaped from a sanitarium dressed as a murdered nurse.
1: Right. So. Exactly. And he stole pants that I guess just, you know, they didn't leave changing those pants in the laundry. So what are you going to do? So he does need money at some point. He runs off, uh, runs underneath a bridge. There's this weird bit where there are all these poles that are stuck in the ground. They're concreted into the ground, sticking straight up. And he jumps at one of them, and I swear to God, he almost pole dances
0: fuck yeah Billy Zane
1: He sits down finishes his hot dog and he looks a little scared and like when Billy Zane needs to look scared or troubled he actually does in this film I think for everything that we just said about like how oh, like oh, over the top just sounds almost insulting to call it this but like how hyper expressive he is in this film when he needs to play it down and like do less is more he does it in this film that's like why we love him so much in this thing
0: Yeah he's so good And so
1: he sits and just falls asleep underneath that bridge and then he heads off to a parking lot and sees that it's a parking lot where people are told, leave your keys in your cars. And I I don't park very often. Like, if I'm in, like, a big city, I'm often, like, getting a cab or an Uber. I don't drive my own car in the city too much. But do inner-city parking lots do that, where they have you leave your keys in your car while the car is just parked there?
0: So there are times in which if you're doing valet parking You do give your keys to the valet, and then they hold on to your keys. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they keep them in the car, (laughs) in the places that they park, I don't know. It's generally not a super safe practice. But this is also, we're going to find out later, set in the 1970s.
1: So, yeah.
0: But it also seems to be set in multiple time periods. Because we have all of this, like, weird inflation and then deflation happening with the price of stuff uh, yeah. <laughs> and with like the quaintness of things uh-huh. and i'll get into the foley's theater later which seems to be even like 30 years prior so there's a weird collapse of time but i think it just feeds into this quaintness of edward's worlds in which people would just leave their keys in the car because there's this certain 1960s suburban sensibility very true
1: you got a point there well, Edward, or uh, I called him, I want to call this guy Edward. I think he, is, in a way, is a self insert Edward character. Who knows? But the thief, played by Billy Zane, begins to beat up the parking lot attendant as this music that made me think of Fatboy Slim, especially Rockefeller Shank, uh, is playing over the fight scene. He beats the crap out of this guy uh, who also has a wig on.
0: Everybody has wigs. Everyone has Everybody wigs. Everybody has wigs.
1: And uh, also has a gun. So now the thief has a gun, just picks out a car and drives away. And then the next day, the thief is plotting a robbery. Just really quickly going, and he's like, I need some money. I need a lot of money. What am I going to do?
0: Well, yeah, it it seems like a very impulsive robbery. I don't know if it's a full-on plot.
1: Well, okay, I I say this because the next script we have, which is scene slash shot 25, exterior interior, sedan, street, day. The camera shoots out the front windshield of the thief's stolen sedan. He drives along, trailing an armored car.
0: So it's also important to note that this is scene or shot 25 from 14. So between these like two different scenes here, we get like 13 different shots, which is just as much as the entire beginning of the movie, up until the hot dog thing. So when I said to remember that only 13 shots had passed, like suddenly we're packing a lot more shots in, in between these next the scenes. The numbers
1: are just not making sense here. It's so strange, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's, that's gonna remain the rest it's, it's of the It's just right another
1: there. mystery about this movie, folks. It's a good one, trust me, it, it makes you think.
0: Yeah, it's fun to just, like, puzzle patch back together, like, what the shot numbers would have been for, like, the different, like, which shots he actually marked out and which ones he didn't.
1: So the fact that he's already trailing an armored car seems to indicate this is something he's thinking out. But he does, when he sees the armored car stop and sees that it's transporting money into the building, he does appear to look around slowly back up next to a very bright red fire hydrant, which is, dude, come on, dick move and heads into the bank. And so I guess you could say, like, as he's backing up and, f- and seeing that it's a bank that this money is going into, he decides, okay, I know what I could do. Yeah.
0: Well, this seems to be just a loans office, because on the side of the window, it's just going to say loans, loans, loans. There's no <laughs> name of this place. It's just
1: a bunch of the word loans. Come on down to loans, 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 we'll get you the best loans for all your time. No more pain, pain, pain when you have loans, loans, loans. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Although
0: I kind of got the sense that he just happened to pull into traffic and he was behind a car, like an armored car. And then he just sort of follows there and goes, OK, I will see this through because he does just seem like an impulse. Yeah, dude, right? Oh, like Whatever he comes across, he he's just going to steal.
1: Very impulsive. Yeah. He goes into the bank and pulls out a gun on the loan officer. I guess the loan officer office pulls out a gun on the loan officers and you know demands money and they are like oh my god they have no alarm that they can pull i guess they pack it up and again this is just great moments of billy zane where his face is going like from huh yeah put it in there put it in there put it in there oh you put it in there thank you so much thank you so he goes from snarling to smiling so quickly in this scene that i i love again i love everything he's doing here
0: We're also going to have an eye gaze, like, standoff. Yeah,
1: extreme close-ups on the eyes as everyone's, like, darting back and forth at each other.
0: (laughs) And whoever is playing the bank loan manager, which which dude is that? Uh, Do we know? I
1: thought he was a person that I knew, but he's not.
0: So he is just going to give these really super intense eyes and expression back and forth. It's really great. (laughs) So, yeah, we're going to have this, like, eye standoff. And there is a gun in the drawer as well. And so little bank attendant is trying to decide, do I give him the money or do I try to shoot him? And he's gonna give him the money first, and then he's gonna try to shoot him. <laughs> and he's a terrible like, shot. Like
1: from ten feet away, he can't even like nick the thief's arm. And the thief like looks around, looks back at him is like, Dude, dick move
0: <laughs> Yeah, and so then he does the only logical thing and shoots this guy <laughs> back, and is a much better shot. Shoots from the hip, yeah. classic gunslinger Western style. Dude dies in a single shot, and now our thief has murdered another person. <laughs> we're just adding to that body
1: count. We, don't, we know he murdered at least one nurse in the sanitarium. Uh, there's no telling how, like, what unseen murders he committed to get out of that place. But yes, now we're up to a body count of two for this guy.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the cops are after him, probably because they saw him park in front of a fire hydrant yeah. and were coming in just to give him a ticket. And then they're like, hey, so you murdered someone. Not, not
1: cool. As they're running out of the bank, the assistant loan officer, she's over the main loan officer's corpse and is weeping and like kissing him like as he lays there dead. It's...
0: Yes, corpse fucking. Yeah. It's going to happen. Corpse fucking.
1: The thief uh, runs off, jumps into a backyard. He gets tangled up in some ropes. It's a lot of slapstick and goofy music going on. He hides off in some bushes, and the sounds have come back. He, like, he's hearing the tires squealing in his head again, and it's driving him crazy. And we get some flashback stock footage that is, I think you could call this some Kulshav cool effect action here, where we see him grasp his ears, and then we get stock footage of a little boy being hit in the ear by a baseball. And I'm pretty sure we're meant to believe that that little boy is the thief. And that's what caused his ear problems.
0: Absolutely. And so in this moment, it really becomes apparent. And it's going to stay that way throughout the rest of the film that we are working with some really cool use of montage that is highly reminiscent of the Soviet style or the Soviet school era of montage construction and filmmaking. This is really gonna be brought to us by a dude named Eisenstein.
1: Yeah, the the theory of relativity guy, yeah, Eisenstein.
0: got to clear my throat for this uh, professorial lecture. Yeah, (laughs) I think his first name is Sergei, I think it's Sergei Eisenstein. Mm -hmm. And he is really, there's gonna be some other people that add to the Soviet style of montage, but he's really gonna be like the big name that really solidifies the theory of montage. And his direct quote on the matter is that montage is an idea that amasses from the collision of independent shots, wherein each sequential element is perceived not next to the other, but on top of the other. How this is then interpreted is this idea of montage theory, in which that is the basis of filmmaking, that a series of connected images allows for an extraction of meaning or for meaning to be extracted from this sequence and mash of images piled on top of each other. And so how that was often used in the Soviet style of montage is stuff like this, where you have what seems to be a couple of different unconnected images, but the fact that we're putting them together in this little soup of back and forth between somebody clutching their head and seeing an ear injury happen in baseball in a black and white stock footage and then cutting to, like, car horns or whatever, right, is this idea that film rhetoric tells us that all of these images are supposed to inform one another, in which case we can deduce that, yes, he has hearing problems and that not only is this particular black and white stock footage flashback from the 1950s or 60s his memory or internal landscape we can probably then extend that to all of the other black and white childhood stock footage that we're going to get throughout the rest of the film but yeah right here we get the sense that he did suffer something physical with his hearing and that this is going to be a very major thing for his character throughout because it's coming up again and we're establishing that origin And that's the end of my lecture for now on Eisenstein. (laughs) All right. I might get back to it.
1: Oh, please. Like, one can only hope. Well, we do this theory, I think, that does hold water in even the next scenes, because the thief runs off, hides in a construction area atop a scaffolding to evade the police. And as he goes asleep, there's more stock footage flashbacks uh, of a life of shame and scolding, I believe, as you like to put it.
0: Yes. Well, it's just... Flashback to a little baby crying in a crib and then different ages of a young boy who's just getting like a finger wagged in his face at different periods in his life. And so apparently this poor thief has really internalized this long life of just people scolding him and shaming him for who and what he is. Although we're given no indication what that is or what this kid has done. He's
1: lived a hard life
0: yeah his life's been really hard you know like us. he's gotten fingers waved in his face it's
1: like every kid that we see in the stock footage there's nothing outwardly wrong with them and we see the thief and the thief looks like billy zane not a damn thing wrong with that so what is this problem here we don't know but we just know that he's lived a hard life man
0: he suffers, he
1: suffers for us all it's very sad As he goes to sleep, we go to the police station where the assistant loan officer that we saw earlier kissing that corpse, you know, get that necrophilia going. She's with the police going through some file photos and they find a photo of the thief. So like, okay, we found this guy. We're going to figure this out next day. His picture is in the newspaper on the headlines uh, talking about the murder and the crimes. The thief is reading this in an alley and there's another interesting moment again this like repeat editing that we see he tosses the paper away starts to walk off and then it jumps cut back to him tossing the paper away and walking off before walking back and then the shot is reversed to show the paper flying back up into his hand edward never like did any weird reversal uh work with this film so again another unique aspect of this film but he begins to read it and we have some screenplay appearing before us 66 Insert, newspaper. It reads, slain loan officer Burial serves to be held today at Woodlawn Cemetery. So the thief decides he's going to go to the funeral of the man that he killed. He's an impulsive guy.
0: Yeah, naturally. Yeah, this guy's pure impulse, right? He's pure id. Gotta love it. This newspaper is also the Los Angeles Banner, is the name of the newspaper, and it mentions that LAPD is on the case. So this is officially locating us. And our story, diegetically, within Los Angeles. Correct. And the Woodlawn Cemetery is where this is going to take place. Is that an
1: actual cemetery?
0: It is an actual cemetery, yes.
1: I mean, I figured it was a real cemetery. I just didn't know what exactly this place was.
0: Yeah, there are actually a lot of different cemeteries throughout the U.S. that are going to be called Woodlawn Cemetery. So the one in California is certainly not the only one. But the only Woodlawn Cemetery within the greater Los Angeles area is the one in Santa Monica, owned and operated by the city of Santa Monica. So it's one of the few cemeteries that are actually owned by the city Mm. in California. It's has a lot of famous historical and celebrity people who are buried there. Mm-hmm. Ed Wood is not going to be one of these people, no. <laughs> which I thought would have been kind of a cool thing yeah. if it was like, oh, we'll go to Ed Wood cemetery. Yeah,
1: Edward was cremated, and I think his ashes were scattered at sea, according to Rudolph yeah. book. So no grave marker for him, sadly.
0: Yeah, so Ed Wood is not going to be in Woodlawn Cemetery, but a lot of other people are going to be. And I do believe, although it was very hard to find... A lot of specifically detailed production notes about this movie for a lot of reasons that we already expounded upon from what i can visually match from all of the shots that are going to be done in the cemetery as well as later within the interior shots of the mortuary this looks very similar if not identical to actual woodlawn cemetery Mm. so My very strong hypothesis is that the Woodlawn Cemetery that we get in this film is indeed the actual Woodlawn Cemetery in Santa Monica. Woodlawn Cemetery in Santa Monica is going to have a lot of that similar mixture of different types of headstones, the ones that are on the ground as well as the erected ones. They're going to have a little bit of mausoleums, and the interior of their mortuary also has those marble walls with the little iron slots and stuff, so... They either did a really painstaking job to replicate Woodlawn <laughs> Cemetery or they're using Woodlawn Cemetery. And I'm betting it's the latter, yeah. especially since it's city-owned.
1: Given that this was a, a very independent film shot in a month, more than likely, yeah, they're shooting on location for this. At this, uh, there is a funeral happening at Woodland Cemetery, and there are a lot of mourners there, uh, played by a few familiar faces uh, to some of us. Uh, Tippi Hedren is there, who is in many of Alfred Hitchcock's films ron perlman is a caretaker john ritter is one of the mourners sandra bernhard is one of the mourners so there are a lot of faces at this thing and off in the distance watching everything unseen is the thief and now as he stands hidden behind a tree watching everything we get some more script 74 exterior ancient cemetery thief's point of view afternoon The thief observes what he mistakenly believes to be loan officer's burial as several dark figures gather around a coffin.
0: It does specify thief's point of view. And it is very clearly, as we get this shot, not the thief's point of view, because the title card is superimposed <laughs> over a shot of the thief behind a bush
1: <laughs> so much like the insert shot that was not an insert shot we have a point of view shot that is not a point of view shot
0: exactly it's amazing it's it's so amazing
1: now as the thief is watching all of this he sees the mourners take out a tuning fork a very small little tuning fork which they hit with a very tiny little hammer and it's a strong enough sound that it makes this bottle of booze that Ron Perlman's caretaker is drinking, the bottle breaks.
0: Yes, because those tuning forks, they're powerful.
1: Are, okay, can tuning forks actually do that, though? That's something you I feel like you always see in cartoons and movies, but I've never seen that replicated in real life, the ability to shatter glass, at least from that distance, with a tuning fork of that size.
0: Okay, so... I don't know if you can break glass with a tuning fork. That sounds like some mythbuster shit mm-hmm. that I did not look up <laughs> and or know off the top of my head. But I can tell you about tuning forks cuz I do know a little bit about tuning mm-hmm. forks. So tuning forks. Tuning yes, forks. tuning forks.
1: All about tuning forks with Professor London.
0: Tuning forks are these two-pronged little metal things that you hit and a pitch will emit from them. And what that pitch is depends on the length and mass of these two prongs these were invented in 1711 by a british musician named john shore Mm. and they're really really useful they're useful in music but they're also useful in medicine strangely enough in particular the medical field that deals with ears Mm. ear anatomy and hearing
1: ears you say
0: Yes. What's really cool about tuning forks, and we're going to get this in a second as well, when the guys within the film take out the tuning fork, ring it, and then put it over the coffin and just rest it on the top of the coffin, and that pitch continues to hum. That's because tuning forks, you can rest their base on a solid object, and it doesn't disrupt the vibrations. And because of this, these tuning forks are actually used in a couple of hearing tests. And those hearing tests are the Ryan and Weber tests. And this is to conduct both conductive hearing loss tests and the craziest word, sensorineural tests. I get you. Yeah, for hearing loss. <laughs> conductive hearing loss is when sounds can't pass through the middle part of the ear. And so that's going to occur when there's damage to the small bones in the middle ear or your eardrum or a buildup of earwax or fluid, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And then the other kinds of hearing loss is when you have damage further in, damage to the ear's nervous system and auditory nerve perhaps are part of the colloquia. So there are different types yeah, of, of hearing loss one can suffer. And so when you take that little tuning fork and you hit it, With the Rhine test, in the first part, they're going to place the base of that tuning fork on the bone behind the ear, and it's going to create that vibration of sound. And the ear can actually pick up that sound of the vibration through the bone. And then they're going to do it a second time and just hold it out next to the ear. So there are two ways in which your ear hears, which we also kind of get in that early stock footage video (laughs) of like how your ear works, is that there's air conduction, where you just kind of get air coming in through the ear canal. And then there's that bone vibration. If you have conductive hearing loss, then the bone conduction where they put the tuning fork on the bone behind your ear, that's going to be a sound that you can hear longer because there's nothing wrong with that nervous system with those inner bones. If you have sensorineural (laughs) hearing loss, then the air conduction one is going to be the one that's heard a bit longer, though not as long as like non-injured ears would hear it. And why this is kind of a weird, cool fact is that Later, after these mourners are going to come and put the tuning fork on the grave, little Billy Zane, our thief, is going to come around and he's going to pick up the tuning fork and he's going to hit it and it's going to vibrate and he's going to kind of hold it up to his ear and he's going to hum along to it. And so what this indicates to me is that this fellow who has suffered for a long time in his character development, hearing issues from that baseball injury has been given the Ryan and Weber test before. He knows what this tuning fork is, and he knows that it has to do with his hearing, and he can hum along with the pitch to it. So he holds it up and he starts to hum. And so he is getting at least some air conduction in. Okay. He's not going to hold it up to like the bone behind his ear, so we don't actually get the differential diagnostic of which one he hears better. Mm -hmm. But to me, this actually almost implies that his issue is the sensorineural one that has damaged his actual kind of ear nervous system and something deeper in the ear so he's suffering a a rarer hearing condition and issue to suffer from an injury so that actually as weird as it is that he goes and he picks up that tuning fork and just stares at it and starts humming with it is a very interesting layered use of carrying through his hearing loss And just the hauntingness of this part of, yeah, his character development through in really weird, cool ways. Yeah, a lot of these decisions that they're making in this movie are incredibly (laughs) well-supported in a weird
1: way. Very dense, very, very deep background that they're giving this and these small little choices there. So, yeah, I dig it. Well, anyway, the thief sees that all going on. He also notices the police and he hides. The police question the mourners. The caretaker goes into his pyramid, I guess Woodland just yeah. has a has a pyramid what the fuck? where the caretaker <laughs> sleeps, and Ron Perlman, he looks around for booze, and he finds booze, so yay! Interesting note, this isn't the first movie that Ron Perlman has ever done that has zero dialogue. His first movie, uh, Quest for Fire, also, no words spoken in that because it's all cavemen. Fuck yeah. Yeah, there you go. The thief, he runs off, passes out at the bagpipe music. That's plain as this goes on Uh, late at night when he opens up the coffin. We have the script again, which is up to shot 99 at this point. The shot earlier was 72. Now we're up to 99. This is going and going. There's so many shots that are supposed to be happening here. But it says exterior, cemetery, night. The thief is surprised to find not the slain loan officer's corpse, but a decaying skeleton dressed in the robes of some mysterious cult.
0: Fuck yes. Okay, so when this sentence appeared on my screen, I got so excited. I was like, oh my god, yes! A subplot about a mysterious graveyard cult. Like, what the fuck? Unfortunately, this is not going to be as carried through and or as explored as mm. I would really have loved yeah. it to be. But in that way, that becomes so indicative of an Ed Wood script. Right. Because Ed Wood will occasionally just throw at us these weirdly brilliant moments in his like (laughs) plotting, right, where it's like, oh, my God, this could be the hook thief goes to accidentally do some... I don't know what his plan is with the loan officer's body, first of all. Like, what is he planning on doing? Why is he even
1: attending... Like, first of all, why even go to the funeral? You have the money, and you know the police are looking for you. Going to the funeral would be one of the worst things you could do. But the thief is very impulsive.
0: Yeah, so I don't know what the plan was in the first place, but, like, this hook of thief gets drawn in to some mysterious graveyard cult just doing this ritual... I'm surprised that it came out of nowhere for me, because for a moment I was like, holy shit, that's amazing, like, what a twist, and I was like, wait, this is an Ed Wood film, of course there's a mysterious graveyard cult, like, what am I thinking? That's what you do. But, yeah, he occasionally just, like, gives us these amazingly brilliant plot moments, and you really want him to... Just dwell on it, right? Like, and see that through. But he's not going to. This is just going to be like just another moment, another moment in the day in the yeah, life
1: of. We seem to get hints of the cult more and more as it goes along, but not too sure what the cult is all about. There you go. After he has opened up the coffin, he hears bagpipe music more, and that again makes some spaz out, and he drops the money in the coffin and has to run off because he sees the police chasing him. There's some awesome like work with red lights in this scene where they are just red lights behind the police and him as they're running around in the fog in the cemetery. I just love shots like that.
0: Yeah, it was a gorgeous shot, but what is the light source of that? Where is this red light coming from? The cult. But the cult's what?
1: They're the red light cult. Moving on.
0: Because at first I was like, is it the police car? And we're just forgetting the blinking part and the blue part of the lights, but no.
1: They turned on the police lights and it just got stuck. It's just red light everywhere.
0: But no, because he goes back to the cemetery later and the red light is still there Yeah, in the so it was the police
1: car. The police left it there because the light was broken. They're like, well, we can't use the car anymore. The light's broken.
0: Anyway, this red light is really cool, but it doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't matter because it's an Ed Wood script. Exactly. So we just let it happen. We keep going.
1: I don't mind. He runs around and falls into a grave, and more stock footage happens. I forget what the, what the stock footage is here. Do you recall?
0: Oh, no. This was another really great use of that Eisenstein montage, because... It's the clock is just going really fast around, Mm -hmm. and then there's some pinwheels, and there's just this movement of time passing in these very classic old-school silent era ways of showing time passing. The most common one used to be showing newspapers printing in really fast succession, and we get that, I think, in Citizen Kane even a little bit, but this is, yeah, it's taken from those, like, what are the classic elements of time passing, and... Yeah, time is passing as he's passed out in this grave with his perfectly pristine shirt, which is going to stay perfectly pristine when he wakes up the next morning. Uh,
1: Yeah, he wakes up, and there's a great moment where he wakes up kind of groggy, goes for a smoke, and then looks around and knows he's in a grave and freaks out, so he has to get out of it. And his shirt, yeah, is just pristine and white uh, throughout the entire time. And so now he sees the casket is gone. He knows that he left the money in the casket, so he has to figure that out, and goes into the caretaker's place. And now we have another script note. 126. Exterior. Caretaker's Pyramid. Dawn. Panicked that the casket is gone, the thief runs to the caretaker's pyramid in hopes of finding his missing money. So notice that it said Dawn there. It's at dawn as he's approaching the pyramid. And then as he gets into the pyramid, it's very clearly night again. So, again, that might be a reference to Ed Wood and his movies switching back and forth between day and night almost constantly. Well, the thief searches the caretaker's pyramid again I, I just can't get over the fact that this thing is a pyramid
0: i know it's so great and i can't get over the fact that like it is deliberately in the which script a pyramid <laughs> so like strange. he plan for that pyramid i
1: guess yeah well as he's searching the, the caretaker wakes up so the thief decides well the only thing i can do is kill this guy with a pillow and he holds a pillow over the caretaker's head for about 10 seconds and this is enough to kill the caretaker off
0: yeah, and that classic movie way of strangulation takes four seconds.
1: Yeah, it's Fine. it's good stuff. Ron Perlman has a great dead face uh, that he does a few times that we see. It. Ron Perlman's always fun to watch. Thief looks around and he sees a piece of paper, and then the script pops up again. One three three close letter insert, woodland cemetery closing caskets to be exhumed and moved to mortuary. The thief takes a letter as a clue to his search for the missing money.
0: The letter is also dated March nineteenth, nineteen seventy-four, so we are given the official timestamp that this is apparently happening.
1: This is yeah, the seventies.
0: More importantly, the caskets are to be exhumed and moved. <laughs> oh my god, that's just that's just so great. It's just so great. The cemetery is closing, so they're gonna have to unbury, unearth, unentomb every goddamn body in the cemetery and move it into the mortuary. And there is going to be a shot hmm. at the very end that pans over the cemetery. Woodlawn Cemetery is huge. And I'm just thinking, that is so many goddamn corpses to exhume.
1: Is that not normal?
0: No, no, this doesn't happen. People don't exhume corpses because the cemetery closes.
1: Like, Jesus. Yeah, that seems a little disrespectful to the dead.
0: And a hassle and really expensive. Yeah. And where else are you going to put these bodies? Yeah, it's just it's ridiculous. It's weird to amazing. think of a
1: cemetery closing. Like, up. Uh, can't do this anymore guys gotta gotta shut her down shut down the cemetery and take all the, the bodies out just get rid of well, them Well,
0: sometimes cemeteries do close in terms of if they're full or if yeah there's no longer funding for that area but then they just become those still standing remaining things i guess that other people have to take over to upkeep or whatever mm-hmm. but yeah you don't unbury the bodies
1: not nah, cool nah dick move gotta say
0: but no, it's such a great detail. I just like love that in Edward's mind, They're yeah. like yeah, of course we're gonna unbury all these bodies, and it's not a plot point either. Like this, <laughs> whether they unbury the bodies or not, like doesn't matter to the plot. So he just like throwing this in here. I don't know. It's great. So great.
1: Um, at the, the mortuary, we get Carol Stroiken. You don't know the name, but you know the face. It's the giant from Twin Peaks, the yeah. Lurch. I just always love when this guy shows up in movies because he has just such an awesome look. He's seven foot two, something like that. And he has like, this crazy huge face. He just always looks so badass whenever he shows up. Uh, the thief evades them, it creates a distraction. The thief goes into the mortuary and finds the casket that he saw earlier. And and opens it up, finds the briefcase, and there's a great moment where he sees the—he's, like, looking around, opens the casket, sees the briefcase, and then, like, looks at the skeleton and, like, smiles, like, haha, thanks, I got it, awesome. Opens it up, but there's no money inside of it, and suddenly he flashes back to all the mourners who were there at the funeral, which seems a little strange to me because he lost the money after they left, so how would they be to blame for the money being gone— who knows?
0: That was exactly my question as well. I'm like, those dudes already left, man. Yeah. Like, your two suspects seem like they are here on the premises. I,
1: yeah, you would suppose so. And so the thief, he knocks over the casket to create a distraction. The funeral director, him and his assistant, they come out to check things out. They are also doing these strange hand motions. We saw all the mourners at the funeral doing. So I guess they're part of the cult. As well, like little small little indications that something is going on here. The thief heads into the office and finds a list of people. Professional mourners.
0: Professional mourners. <laughs> who,
1: attended, who attended the thing. Sandy Sands, Tom Harris, Melinda Ousted, and Robert Forst. Yours truly, John Bart. Who's John Bart? Do we ever know who, find out who John Bart
0: We don't ever know who John Bart is. And this is a reply to the Joshua Higgins ceremonial rites. That's also going to be important later because we're going to see a sign later in the cemetery that's going to claim that the cemetery belongs to a completely different funeral company. (laughs) So this is apparently right now the Joshua Maybe this is like a funeral
1: company that's like coming in. They're going to like after all the other bodies are exhumed, they're going to like put their bodies in that cemetery. That's like they're swapping out the bodies. I
0: don't know, man, but (laughs) professional mourners. (laughs) I also got really excited that these were a bunch of professional mourners.
1: This is not something Ed Wood's making up, folks.
0: No, he is not. This is a long time-honored tradition, mostly originating out of really ancient Egyptian customs and still very, very popular in most of Asia, actually, both East and West and South Asia. I did look up the price point. It's about 30 to $120 that one can expect to make, Per funeral, being a professional funeral mourner, there are a couple of very well-known professional mourners that do this daily. There's this one woman in Taiwan that is able to, yeah, just be at a funeral every single day. Some funeral mourners are able to do up to two funerals in a day just because of the length of them. But yeah, there's this whole tradition a lot of symbology and a lot of folklore reasons to bring a professional mourner, professional wailers to perform and help others with their grief, or even perform little plays and whatnot. It's shifted slightly into also now just this status symbol of having more people at the funeral, or if somebody doesn't really have that many remaining relatives uh, outlets to still have people come and mourn. So there are a bunch of different reasons why someone might hire a professional mourner. But yeah, this is a very popular practice in some parts of the world. And it's becoming more of a thing in the US, according to you, because I I was looking up jobs, professional mourners, and there's some out there in the US. So
1: it's around. Well, very cool. The thief now has his list of people that he believes may have stolen the money. So he takes that, runs off into the night. Cut to Sandra Bernhard doing a dance and pasties at a nightclub. Sandra Bernhard, did you see her much when you were younger?
0: I did seem to, like, I know her face. Well, her face seemed to be in a lot of stuff. You cannot but forget I her face. I couldn't tell you, like, her whole oeuvre. Yeah,
1: you don't forget Sandra Bernhard's face. It is a unique face.
0: So did you see Sandra Bernhard a lot when you were younger?
1: I think I remember seeing her on Roseanne a lot when I was a kid. I think she had a role on there, and it's I, I was just thinking about her. I'm like, man, this is just indicative of like how taste changed so much. Because when I was younger, I remember seeing her in stuff, and just thinking like, oh god, her again? Why? Why is she in this? And yet nowadays, whenever I see Sandra Bernhard in something, I'm like, oh fuck, this woman is on fire. She is made of fire. More Sandra Bernhard. So. I thoroughly enjoyed everything she did here. Uh, I nowadays really love, love seeing Sandra Bernhardt and things. I had never seen her do this before though. I had never seen her dance nearly topless except for pasties and in a g-string for a crowd of stock footage young boys.
0: Yes, she is doing the full show, girls. She's got this amazing headpiece on that's glittery and bejeweled and goes a couple of feet into the air with feathers. And it's going to go back and forth between her just having these open arms and quasi just slightly shimmying around, cutting to a very large black and white audience of stock footage. Of children. Kind of, yeah, like mostly children from like the 1950s.
1: It looks like something from like a, a Day at the Circus kind of short, where we just see young boys and girls clapping and applauding like, yay, yay, while Sandra Bernard is stripping.
0: It's another really great decision. This is also, if we recall the letter. So this is Sandy Sands, mm-hmm. and she's at the Follies Theater or the Follies Theater in Los Angeles on Main Street. And the cool thing is that the Follies was an actual theater in Los Angeles on Main Street. So at 337 South Main Street, or it was, it was demolished in May of 1974. And so I guess if this is March of 1974, it's going to be around for a couple more months. How about that? But it started out as the Belasco Theater, built in 1904. And so it was a big theater house in Los Angeles for a little while. And then it's going to become the Republic in 1912 and become a vaudeville theater. And then it'll officially become the Follies. I'm not sure it's the
1: Follies or the Follies. Mm, Follies sounds right. In
0: 1919, and it's going to become one of the two top most important burlesque theaters in California. And so it was a big burlesque venue space, and it is pretty much going to stay a burlesque space all the way through to the end of the 70s or the mid-70s when it was demolished. Mm. But towards the end there, it's also going to start showing skin flicks. Quote-unquote, skin flicks was the term that was still being used in the 1960s when they started screening those as well. (laughs) But yeah, it's a very important burlesque performance space. And so it's cool that they locate her in this specific performance space as she's doing a burlesque performance. Although... This seems to be a little bit more of an earlier time of burlesque than would have been going on at the Follies in March of 1974, because at that point it was pretty much a porn theater. Mm. So I don't
1: know. (sighs) The more you know, folks, the more you know. She heads backstage, and my notes just have the greatest succession of actions of all time. Uh, It just says, Sandy heads backstage, laughs at a bird, smokes some weed, and spanks a stripper
0: three times
1: yeah three like whack 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 like she is on it
0: well it's not even that she does it three times it's that the film reel rewinds yeah. and we get the same shot three times
1: oh <laughs> uh, yeah again it's more of that that very unique editing to this film not to Ed wood. As she goes back to her dressing room and <laughs> takes a shot but she hears a noise and out pops the thief and we don't see anything aside from him holding his his hand over her mouth so she doesn't scream, and then it just fades to a new scene, him in an alley, and a new script note that says, 184, close. Letter after disposing of Sandy, San's lifeless body, the thief moves on to the next suspect on the list, Tom Harris. So we're just told that the thief has killed Sandy and disposed of her body, I guess without any... Problems or difficulty whatsoever, and decides he's got to move on to the next guy.
0: Yeah, so this is one of those inserts where we're like, we're just not going to show that at all, huh?
1: Yeah, like, just you're not even going to try to film him dragging Sandra Bernhard's corpse away. No, okay, whatever.
0: I mean, I guess we don't need it when we have these silent era title I cards, guess, yeah. but let it's, us know.
1: That's <laughs> how it goes. Uh, We don't have time for dragging a corpse away because we have to get to this bar where the bartenders are Rain and Summer Phoenix.
0: Yes, Rain and Summer Phoenix.
1: In these wild outfits. I want to go to this bar. This place looks amazing.
0: Yes, so Rain and Summer Phoenix are going to be the sisters of Joaquin Phoenix.
1: And River Phoenix.
0: And River Phoenix, Phoenix, yeah. And also Liberty Phoenix. She's in the family, too. She's the one we haven't mentioned, so we'll just throw her name in there as well.
1: Name drop Liberty Phoenix, as we do. Yeah,
0: you know. These two sisters, what's kind of interesting, at least to me, about these two... So this film was made in 1998. Mm -hmm. In 1997, Rain and Summer Phoenix are going to have started a band with two to three other individuals. I can't remember how many people were in the band. Called The Causey Way. Mm -hmm. And this was a new wave punk band. And they had a little gimmick. And their gimmick was that their backstory was that they were a cult.
1: Uh...
0: And that their leader was a man named Kazi, who was the lead singer of the band The Kazi Way. This man's name is actually Scott Stanton, and this cult shtick was just that. It wasn't actually anything other than this strange performance that they were doing. And this band would tour for about four years, and then they would disband. But... Yeah, so they formed in 1997, so they were just building this weird reputation as this new wave punk cult band that were all about worshipping the lead singer, Kazi. And they actually made shirts at the time and posters and all these things that said, the cozy way is not a cults was part of their back and forth kind of like tongue in cheek joke. I don't know, it was all part of this weird performance. So it's interesting to put that in the context of them appearing in this film, because this is what they would have been getting known for at the time, as, as these two cult band members that wasn't actually a cult. Also fun to bring up the cozy way is not a cult slogan, because Jared Leto and his band 30 Seconds to Mars would some years later steal that slogan and use it for their own promotional material because early 30 seconds to Mars shirts read 30 seconds to Mars like or echelons or something like this is not a cult or I can't remember exactly their phraseology but they like take that from the causey way and try to yeah use it and market it so I mean it's a whole lineage of weird stuff you get into
1: Jared Leto and cults these days and you're going into a whole weird direction
0: that's true. Now now he actually might
1: this is a cult. have a cult. <laughs> That's what his t shirt to yeah. say. Like this this is definitely a cult, actually.
0: Yeah, we're we're not gonna get into that, but if you're interested, look up Jared Leto and <laughs> Colts. Well back on track.
1: A Little off track. <laughs> At this bar that the Phoenix sisters are bartending, the thief walks in and we have this interesting pantomime moment where he looks around, like, smiles at them, and is doing his, like, Billy Zane's doing his thing, and then he leans in close, and the shot moves further away, so we have this big, wide shot of the bar, so that we can see Billy Zane is leaning over, whispering something to the bartender. He's, like, moving his hands around to indicate, like, I'm looking for a guy about this wide, about this high, uh, has hair, like, whatever, that sort of thing. So it's another instant in which this movie is finding creative ways to not have any on-screen dialogue at all. They are definitely talking to each other and saying words, but we're not hearing any of it. I like the way the movie finds ways to work that out. Well, the bartenders know exactly who he's talking about because they point at a table. Thief grabs uh, some more booze and decides he's going to go have a chat with this guy.
0: Yeah, and there's this great moment where he's about ready to just smash this bottle over this guy's head, and then the guy turns, and Billy Zane just smiles at him instead and presents the bottle. It's mm. like, you want to come get a drink with me, yeah. and I'll kill you later. <laughs> and so this guy does. He brings Billy Zane slash the thief back to his run-down wooden shack that is set up all by itself on the side of an old forgotten highway in what looks like some sort of Roman architectural meets derelict train yard. I don't know. it's a really it's, great it's set. It's a really great location. strange. just
1: this yeah derelict cabin that's in the middle of a vacant lot next to a highway
0: and it looks really dusty. It looks really flammable. And Billy Zane thinks so too, because he's going to look around for the money. and it's clear that this guy does not have any. And so he has to die he has to die. <laughs> and that needs to be by fire. And so Billy Zane is going to, have a couple of stock footage flashbacks to his childhood of setting fires, and then he's going to set another fire right here, right now, with his little oil lantern, and this thing's just going to go up in flames. And he's just going to walk out and walk down this really great long shot of him transversing this derelict landscape in Los Angeles, wherever he is.
1: He also reads the paper, like... Guy burned alive in fire. He look, sees that paper, just does not care at all, apparently.
0: And we're getting this really strange sense of like time because that is some really fast reporting. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if reporters were able to just, in that magical Ed Wood timeline, get there, get the story, and then print it in the paper and distribute it within the hour or two mm-hmm. that it takes. I don't know.
1: Evening edition, maybe. If yeah. Our
0: thief is just losing time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Either one is possible, I suppose. But he's going to come across a woman who is in front of a car and she's also wearing a great wig.
1: So, a lot of great wigs in this. He steals the purse from her. And it's, a, I don't know who played this woman, but it's a very strange acting moment where in stealing the purse, she appears to faint with fright and slowly, like, falls against her car and slowly falls down, but she does it very stiffly. So, she's not going limp. More like one of those goats that, like, they just freeze when they get scared. You know, you know the kind? Oh, yeah. It's like that. It's like, ah! Falls over, but body is still very stiff. Like, yeah.
0: He's going to go through her little coin purse. He's going to find a couple of different, you know, like, random items and five $1 bills.
1: Ah, oh, well, that's some money, but not much.
0: It's not much, but at the same time, we're living in a weird cost place because we've got 45 cent hot dogs later we're gonna have like 25 cent rooms so there's this weird (laughs) not really full understanding of like how much stuff costs
1: but as he gets away he does this weird like side shuffle down the hill to evade the police and the police almost catch him but the police are then distracted by this car wreck that has apparently just happened and there's this epic crane shot of, of this car wreck of these kids who are in their prom dresses. The prom queen is Tara Reed in one of two roles in this film. And there's just this awesome crane shot moving along of these two cars that have collided. A man in a wheelchair has come along to check things out. The police man is looking at everything, confused and terrified. And then we're done with that scene.
0: Yes, it is fucking beautiful, though. That one shot does look very similar to the James Ballard-based Cronenberg crash film. So, the good crash, the 1995 car crash fetishist film, Crash. 1995 Crash has all of these really great lingering just shots of car crashes in this way that is supposed to voyeuristically fetishize them. And that's happening here again. Mm -hmm. It's just beautiful. It's such a pretty shot that it it actually makes me get a little bit excited by car crashes. I was like, oh my god! I never really got car crash fetishism until this moment. Like that's
1: it did that's lovingly gorgeous. go over the details of like the cracked cars and the bent body work on on the vehicles. So yeah, I could see.
0: I was like, this has brought me into your
1: world, James Ballard. But, no, the yeah, the shot is gorgeous. I'm not really sure what
0: caused the crash. At one point, the police officer is, like, open firing at the thief. So I assume that he accidentally shot the driver of the car instead. Oh, and it caused the crash. Yeah, maybe. I'm not really sure, though. But anyway, so this crash happens. It's completely inconsequential. But most of the stuff that we're running through is really inconsequential. So it's all yeah. good. And he's going to come across... This, like, night boardwalk, we're gonna get, like, a shot of the water, and all of a sudden, it is incredibly dark. And I have this visceral reaction of, like, what in the world happened to your lighting all of a sudden? Like, where did it go? And then it cuts to the boardwalk, and he's walking along, and we had a little bit of a disagreement, I guess, on whether this was day for night or whether this was just dusk, and they just weren't lighting the scene.
1: I think it's day for night. I took another look and it looks a lot like day for night to me. Like it is the blue filter on the lens. Uh, everything is stopped down a whole lot. So it's taking in as little light as possible. The way that the shadows are arranged, it definitely just looks like day for night. It looks like it's trying to emulate, you know, shadows by moonlight, but instead it's shadow by sunlight, but with a blue filter on it. It just looks like day for night to me.
0: So maybe it's just that they have such a heavy gel filter on that not enough light is getting through, so that it just looks like it's mm. an unlit scene. But yeah, this to me is just like, where did your lighting go? Because <laughs> even when you're doing day for night, like you wanna oh, you wanna make light. sure your light yeah. is actually letting you know light into the camera, and it is not here, and so it is a. Sudden, very <laughs> jarring, whatever. <laughs> but I liked the laziness of just this idea that it's like, it's dusk, we're not going to fucking light it, we're just going to roll the I camera. can see that, like, too. That made a lot of sense yeah. to
1: me. He approaches a lighthouse, where it's very bad luck to kill a seabird. We all know that's how it goes. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and this is where his list tells him that his next target is Melinda Ousted, who lives on 12 Beach Avenue, San Pedro. And it's Tippy Hedron. And if you don't know who Tippi Hedren is, she was most famous for appearing in Alfred Hitchcock's films uh, back in the 1960s, Marnie, The Birds. The Birds. And we'll get like kind of a call-out to Hitchcock in a a little bit here. But there's a sign in the front door that says, the owner of this home is deaf, cannot hear you, please come around back and wave or whatever. Well, the thief just doesn't see this sign at all, apparently, because he goes inside and begins ripping the backings of all the paintings that he finds off
0: Yeah, he's looking for the money, if she hid the money in the back of paintings, because that's a classic old way to hide and transport things is behind your paintings. But yeah, he reads this letter that like, hey, I'm deaf come around the back, and then he just starts pounding on the door, and you're like, oh yeah, buddy. That's... So he might actually just be illiterate, I don't well, know. Well, uh,
1: he can't be illiterate, because otherwise how, he's read things, we know he's read things earlier. Well,
0: he's looked at papers. We don't know that he's read them, <laughs> well I guess the body of the guy in the cemetery, I don't know. Maybe he's now <laughs> illiterate, because it's unwarrant. I just
1: figured he didn't pay attention to the sign. But he does... we do linger on it a little bit, so maybe he's read it and forgot, because he's that impulsive.
0: And he also has, like, hearing impairments and issues, so if anything, he should understand this woman. I don't know. (laughs) But, yeah, he's going to go in, he's going to just rip his way through her paintings He's going to eventually get a hold of her and drag her up to the top of this motherfucking lighthouse.
1: As he's doing this, there are two call outs to Hitchcock here. As he's dragging her up, we get the psycho music, not like the, but if you've ever seen psycho, the music that plays over the opening credits to that uh, movie is playing as he's dragging her up there, and then he now has her on the top of this high precipice, which in a way, is a call-out to Vertigo, which ends with James Stewart taking the blonde heroine of that movie up to the top of a high building. And it looks like he is now lifting up this woman to choke her, and she kicks him right in the crotch. And that seems to stop yeah, him. Yeah,
0: tippy fights back.
1: That seems to stop him briefly and he begins to lower her, and then a most evil smile comes across Billy Zane's face. He just full on chucks her off the top of this thing, and she falls to the bottom, and it's a very obvious dummy, of course, that's fallen to the rocks. And some people come to investigate this, and we get the most puzzling cameo in this entire movie.
0: I don't know why it's any more puzzling than anybody else's. I
1: don't know, I guess just the last person I would think of to do a cameo in an Ed Wood tribute-ish movie Jonathan Taylor Thomas pops up here.
0: This body just gets chucked off the cliff and it just is going to cock block Jonathan Taylor Thomas. That's like his role (laughs) in this film must just be cock blocked by a corpse getting tossed off a lighthouse because, yeah, he breaks away for a second. He goes to examine it. And yeah, it's, it's just a little 1998 JTT, which is around... The height of the JTT career and phenomenon. That's going to be when he's on all the teen beat covers. Yeah, he was
1: uh, was the cute kid on Home Improvement at that time. He was starting to do some movies of his own.
0: It's like around Wild America and like Tom and Huck and stuff.
1: Oh, God, I forgot about Tom and Huck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. As he is holding the woman's body in shock and horror at what's just happened, the girl just begins screaming and... That's the scene, <laughs> more or less. Cut to the 99 cent store at night. Love these shots because they remind me of like a lot of those gritty movies from the 70s where a lot of the light that we got in the scene was just all from fluorescence on storefronts or street lights. And the thief is walking by that and he wants to buy something. I wasn't too sure what it was he was trying to buy here. Well,
0: I got the sense very strongly that he was interested in those razor blades because He's walking along this very, yeah, this long shot of the fluorescence, and it's something incredibly gorgeous about the mundaneness, because we get all of the products in the window that are lined up in these very ordinary mundane boxes. Yet somehow combined, it becomes very, very interesting, just the sheer amount of just, like, mundane stuff that he's walking by in almost militaristically ordered fashion. Everything's perfectly in place in this window storefront. And, yeah, then there's this sign on the 99 cent store of sale today only razor blades and shaving cream, 99 cents. And I'm like, yeah, but you're at a 99 cent store. (laughs) So, like, why only that day? Is this the only day you have razor blades? Also, like... A 99 cent store is going to be very much a 90s concept, because as we've seen in this like 70s space that is going by like 1950s prices. 99
1: cents is a lot of money.
0: 99 cents is a ton of money because we're going to go to a motel here where he's going to have an option between 25 cent beds and 75% yeah. or 75 cent rooms. Well, I, and so 99 cent for razor blades is insane. Well, it's even
1: more like oddly puzzling. It's not a price thing, but it's still an element that makes you say, "What? wait, what, huh? After the 99 cent store, he walks by a building and there's a kid there selling newspapers. And it's kind of like a, a newsie. You're like, extra, extra, read all about it. That kid, he's not saying anything though, but that's who he is. And he buys a paper off of this kid. But you wouldn't do that in the middle of the night though. I don't think that the newspaper kids operate that late, but uh, who knows? This
0: kids just trying to make a living. You yeah. Know?
1: Well, he buys that. And then another script piece comes up and says, so we're up to 245 now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we are. 2.45, exterior, dingy street, night. Frustrated at still not having found the money, the thief wanders aimlessly in search of a place to sleep. He then walks into a dingy motel uh, where Malia Nurmi, vampira in Plan 9 from Outer Space, here in her final film role, is sitting in a the motel room playing Solitaire. The thief is Banging the bell that's on the desk, thinking that she's the one who should be serving him.
0: She's like, "Fuck no, yeah. man! I'm enjoying my cigarette. I'm wearing a classic Ed Wood angora sweater." Fuck oh, off!
1: That's, oh, I didn't, I didn't catch that. Yeah, she's wearing angora. Angora was Ed Wood's favorite material.
0: He loved it so man. much. He would constantly steal his girlfriend's angora sweaters. They would just disappear. That, yeah, <laughs> he had taste, you Did know. The, it, was,
1: it was important. Man, had some good taste there. Yeah. But instead, this very greasy guy comes out and gives Ed Wood this ledger, and we get another insert immediately that says, Ledger, 25-cent bed, and then a second close-up that's supposed to say, Ledger's 75-cent room. Again, the, pr- yeah, the pricing here is absolutely insane. We're charging 45 cents for a hot dog, and less for a room for the night. So it's a little strange.
0: Well, it seemed like it was either a 25 cent bed in maybe a communal room Mm. or 75 cents for your own room. Because he first opens, yeah, the 25 cent bed ledger. And Billy Zane's like, nah, I want this ledger, the 75 cent room. And the weird thing is both of these shot inserts are labeled 249. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so somehow both of these shots that are supposed to happen separately because they're juxtaposed are like the same shot number. Maybe that
1: was meant to, like they were meant Fuck to be yeah, match Ed cut would. together. Like we're just gonna see them like one shot after the other, and Ed Wood just decided that those two shots together were shot two forty nine.
0: In which case it would be two forty nine A and two forty nine B. Yeah, but he doesn't
1: have that either. So
0: no. Although already as we mentioned, like doing these like really high numbered like individual numbers for shots already doesn't make any sense from a screenwriting perspective so So whatever it's it's so
1: weird but again we love weird so it's it's great
0: what's even more confusing is he's gonna get sent upstairs to his little room and then this guy's just gonna send up a prostitute i guess that's
1: what the 75 cent room is it's the room where you get a prostitute I guess. This guy, who he signs his name X and pays with a dollar, which the, the clerk holds over a light like you would a oh $100 God, yes. bill. <laughs> I love that effect.
0: He must examine yeah. that $1 bill for counterfeiting. I know. Super important. Can't be Super too Martin. careful.
1: And he sends up a prostitute, played by Christina Ricci. Yeah. And I think at this time, like Christina Ricci, she was...
0: Doing Sleepy Hollow? She, yeah,
1: she. so she had been Sleepy Hollow around this time. She'd done some other independent films, like uh, well, Buffalo 66 with Vincent Gallo, Mm. which is a trip of a movie, if you've ever seen that. Oh, I have. But she heads upstairs, and...
0: She's going to come in, and the thief is going to look confused.
1: what? What? I don't... what, huh?
0: And they're going to engage in a little mating dance where they sort of sway, and Billy Zane is going to open his arms really wide and floppy and just kind of swing his hips about. And she's going to grind up on him, and then he's going to notice that she has some money in her hand that she seems to have pickpocketed from him. From his pajamas.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of sad, too, because you see... Billy Zane is acting his ass off here because you can see the thief letting his guard down and becoming vulnerable a little bit to this woman. This is clearly, there's something that's like being moved within him by all of this, be it erotically or emotionally, what have you. But it's obviously having an effect on him. And that snapped away when he realizes she's just trying to pick his pocket.
0: Yeah, I don't know what else he thought she was there for, like, This random woman appears in the room, just summoned from the depths by her attraction to this stranger that she's never seen until she walks into the room. But yeah, so they have this like moment and he kicks her out. He tears his pillow up and so that he falls asleep on the bed Mm -hmm. in a way that will later have him waking up shirtless on top of a bunch of feathers <laughs> and he's gonna wake up and sit up in this dark room because once again we're not gonna light our night shots at all like fuck lights
1: kind of mask him a little bit okay yeah we're good we're good we got it
0: he's almost not even visible on the screen it is so dark in this room but it kind of adds something yeah. and then we get another title card overlaid title card.
1: 269 Close. Letter insert. The single name of Robert Forrest remains as the last suspect for the missing money.
0: you're like, is he the last suspect though? Or should your original suspects have just been the people at the funeral home? But whatever. So he's going to go and he's going to look for Robert Forrest. And he's going to head to a nightclub to do
1: it. I was a little confused as to why he went into this nightclub looking for Robert Forrest. Because it seems like he just hears music and decides to go into this nightclub.
0: Well, because on the initial letter of his place of residence, it said care of the starlight ballroom. Oh, okay. And so he's going to where he has his mail sent.
1: Okay. Well, to the starlight ballroom he goes, and this is where we meet motherfucking Artha Kit! Yeah!
0: Yes. And she's going to sing an amazing little jazzy song that was never commercially released outside of this film, sadly, man, because it was written for this film, and there's a lot of songs that are like that, actually, on the soundtrack that aren't going to be available elsewhere because they were written for the film, and there was never a soundtrack released.
1: Damn.
0: Oddly enough, forgot to mention in the opening, because it's nuts, so this... Movie is not available anywhere, right? But you can buy a movie poster off of Walmart's website. What? What? Right? There's a listing for a movie poster on the Walmart website. It was actually, yeah, Robbie, our friend Robbie found it. And I had a lot of questions. I was like, wait, is it in stock? And he's like, I can add it to my cart. And I'm like, okay. So apparently either Walmart has this like file that they print on demand or somewhere in a walmart warehouse there's like this stockpile of wow. i woke up early the day i died movie uh, posters that were never used or released or like sought for because this movie was that never is released. more
1: baffling than anything in this movie
0: right i'm wow astounded by this but yes anyway so this music of eartha of kits here did not get released which is unfortunate because it is an amazing song and this vibe of this nightclub is really, really cool.
1: Much like the bar from earlier, I want to be able to go to this nightclub. This is a beautiful place. And we should mention Eartha Kit's very tenuous connection to Ed Wood. Uh, that being go for that it. in Plan 9 from Outer Space, when the flying saucers are flying over Los Angeles, they go by like... The ABC building, NBC building, CBS building, but then in one very brief shot, they fly over a theater, and on the marquee it says in big letters, "Performing tonight, Eartha Kitt." Yeah. So, which was, I think, before Eartha Kitt had been like in many movies or TV shows. I mean, to me, Eartha Kitt is uh, she was the first woman I ever saw portray Catwoman. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, because right. she in a few episodes of the 1960s Batman show, she was a Catwoman in the third season, and that was my first exposure to Batman. So, yeah.
0: So Eartha Kitt, yeah, has given so much, oh, really. Oh, God, yes. This moment here, yeah, she's going to sing as all of these individuals are dressed in these really great, fabulous hats that are, like, super furry and fluffy. And there's another one that is wearing, like, these delicate antlers. I don't know. There's some weird hats mm-hmm. going on in the scene, and I appreciate that. <laughs> It's just really going to set this almost Twin Peaks-ish kind of vibe to the atmosphere of this Mm -hmm. place. Nicolette Sheridan is going to show up and try to seduce him. And they're going to dance a little bit. Yeah, and then like Tara Reid is there. She's a
1: bartender or a waitress, I believe, that brings them beer at some point. Because Nicolette Sheridan has taken the thief and is dancing with him. And he's just seem, he seems to be into it. He's like, yeah, all right, I'm down for this. Let's dance and make out. Okay, great. And everything seems to be going okay until suddenly the bagpipe music starts up. I heard the caretaker play bagpipe music earlier, and that was driving the thief crazy. And now I guess he just hears it in his head and begins to freak out and just starts beating up everybody.
0: Yeah, it, bar fight breaks out.
1: Eartha Kit is off to the side laughing. Interestingly, on IMDb, it says Eartha Kit as herself. But when I looked this thing up on Wikipedia, it said Eartha Kit as cult leader.
0: Yeah, so that's how she is in the credits. Oh. And I wanted to talk about that, but Eartha Kit is apparently the cult leader yeah. in this, which is not. <laughs> really indicated or confirmed in any way by the narrative and so that then questions okay so if she's the cult leader and this seems to be her space then this by extension is still one of those cultish activities i guess but i don't know how that exactly ties into the body because we're never going to get it confirmed what the cult is up to with this corpse or what this cult is about what their core beliefs are what they're trying to get done so her being the cult leader is once again this little tease at this amazing occult world that is lingering in the backdrop and yet we don't actually get that narrative and it's it's a little frustrating because i'm like i want to know more about this eartha kit run yeah. cult
1: man yeah
0: that plays with corpses in graveyards yeah, like come we on give we me don't more
1: more yeah it's strange everyone is fighting in this place. It's like one of those movie fights where one guy is fighting some people, and then I guess like that, that need for a fight just spreads throughout the whole place, because now everyone is just punching one another. All-out all melee pandemonium kind of thing.
0: Billy Zane is at a circus.
1: He, <laughs> that sounds abrupt, but that's just what happens. <laughs> There's a lot of fighting, and then Billy Zane is at a circus. He tries to enter, has no money, sneaks underneath the circus tent, which you'd think they would... Have a better way of dealing with that, because it seems like that's the first thing people would try to do to get into a circus for free.
0: I mean, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people are rushing to get into the circus anyway. Uh, so enough. maybe they just want viewers. But like, what brought him to the circus to begin well, this with? This is where
1: he saw a poster in the bar for Robert Forrest, uh, as a sharpshooter for the circus. So okay, he believes that's right. that. I
0: remember that poster? I forgot it was like the circus specifically. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, he goes to look for Robert Forrest in the circus and it is a circus. It is bizarre. It's a little macabre. It's kind of great. And he's going to, yeah, wheedle his way through, come across a bunch of circus performers that when Billy Zane goes to try to kill Robert Forrest are just going to kick his ass. Yeah,
1: so he kills everyone else on the list except for Robert Forrest. He tries to kill him, and they just throw him out. The circus, they came together that day to protect their man, Robert Forrest, who is played by the late John Ritter.
0: Yeah, so the circus scene, it's very quick, but it stands yeah. out. It's got a certain Ed Wood feeling to it. You get the sense that Ed Wood just really wanted to slot a circus <laughs> shot in there or something. At some point, Billy Zane is going to get out of here by diving on a group of people, and we're going to get a foley effect of bowling pin sounds, yeah. which is super uh-huh. fun. It's a super fun choice. And then he's going to escape by stealing somebody's cab, which is the number one dick thing uh, he does in this movie, to be fair. Yeah. That's an important thing. You can escape from sanitariums. You can steal money from banks. You can kill people, but you don't steal someone's cab, right? Like, that is a line <laughs> that you're crossing. Not cool. So he's going to take that cab, and he's going to go back to the cemetery. Because um, it all leads back I'm to the cemetery. I'm not too sure
1: why he goes back to the cemetery.
0: Oh, yeah. So he's going to drive up to the cemetery gate and there's going to be this giant cardboard sign that has been placed at the gate. And it's going to say, Woodland Cemetery is hereby closed and defunct. All residents will be herein transferred to a new location. For whereabouts of loved ones, please contact Cutler Funeral Home. And then there's a date underneath it that just says really big, March 1974. So once again, we're confirming that this is March of 1974. We're also getting this confirmed that not only is this cemetery closing, it is now closed. So I guess in the last eight hour to 24 hour odyssey that he's taken spree killing his other suspects, this cemetery has officially closed. And the loved ones are going to be moved. Once again, we're getting this, like, affirmed. Like, nah, we're going to dig up all of these That's corpses. That's a lot of corpses to dig don't up. Don't
1: My God.
0: There's so many of them. But they're all apparently being moved and transferred to other places. Because, you uh, know, the city has the budget yeah. for that, I guess. Magically, the, the somewhere. The thief
1: goes back to the pyramid, that I still cannot believe that there's a pyramid here. And starts going through everything that he can to try and figure out where the money might be. Or just, I don't know, maybe he's just mad at the caretaker. Who knows? But the bagpipes keep, like, going off, and he hears the bagpipe music that makes him mad. He wraps up the caretaker and the bagpipes and takes them outside. The police arrive. Another lovely show of the police arriving through the fog. It's I love sh- fogs and lights. It's, it's always a good thing.
0: The police have been on him pretty non-stop mm-hmm. since the beginning of this movie. Like, the LAPD is surprisingly on top of this one random dude that seems to keep going very unexpected places. And yet they still can't
1: get him. It's the strangest thing. They always, like, just, it- uh, just see him, like, right over there, and yet, no, they can't catch him.
0: Yeah, it is a very bizarre, high-octane, but very inconsequential chase <laughs> <laughs> that is happening here.
1: He has the caretaker wrapped up, and carrying him fireman-style, I think he means to put the caretaker's body into the empty grave he was in before, drops him, and in frustration the bagpipes, throws the bagpipes, and, oh my god, twist! The money was in the bagpipes the whole time!
0: Yeah, so something about his subconscious, it knew that the money was in those bagpipes because those bagpipes have been haunting That's what I thought. Like,
1: maybe he keeps hearing the bagpipes because that's, you know, the the money is calling out to him. Like, we're in the bagpipes, man. Come and get us. Stop trying to kill Sandra Bernhardt. The world needs her stripping.
0: So maybe he's a little psychic. Maybe he's just really intuitive. I don't know. But he's trying to hide this grave... Keeper's body in a grave, even though he's left all the other ones as far as we know exactly where he killed them. So, at this point, that ship has sailed, buddy, but whatever. Like, if he wants to drop the grave digger, caretaker in a grave, like, he can. It's fine. But he trips.
1: Yep. Trips.
0: And he's gonna go hurtling into the grave himself.
1: We hear a snap, I think. It's it's subtle, but it's there.
0: Yeah, see, I missed the snap, so I was like, wait, did he just... Die? How did he die? Because we don't see him emerge again. He doesn't do the little like grave hoppy thing that he did when he first fell into a grave and then tried to hop out of it a couple like he literally tries to hop out of it uh-huh. a couple of times earlier and it's super cute. But yeah, here he doesn't emerge again. And these police officers are gonna take all night to figure this out because this is all happening at night. And then the next day these police officers are gonna approach the grave that he fell into. As the money is strewn across the grass and it's just blowing in the mm. wind and they come and they just look over the side of the grave and kind of shake their heads because he's met his demise. And what
1: song is playing during all of this?
0: Nat King Cole's There Was a Boy or Nature Boy, I guess, is the, the official name of the song.
1: thing.
0: And it's so haunting and sad that he has not learned to love and be loved yeah. in return. <laughs> he has had a very hollow life of having fingers waved in his face and then imprisoned in his sanatorium possibly for the sonic assault that keeps happening from his injury or whatever. Also possibly because he's a homicidal maniac that keeps spree killing people. Yeah. Speaking of the music.
1: Yeah. I wonder, was there anyone special that had anything to do with the music design of this movie?
0: Well, so the credits are gonna roll.
1: <laughs> again, the Jesus I Was Evil song is playing again.
0: Both Benji and I apparently independently noticed and paused on the fact that the music supervisor is listed as Billy Zane. <laughs> and not only is he listed as the music supervisor, there's like some really discernible space between the credits of like everybody else and the music supervisor, Billy Zane, and then like more space before the rest of the credits. Like they're really highlighting this like Billy Zane credit. I don't know in what way he was the music supervisor, designer, or the music designer, because there are a lot of music and sound related people that worked on this film. So I don't know exactly what Billy (sighs) Zane did in his designer role,
1: but. Billy, reach out to us, man. We want to know.
0: Yeah, inquiring minds want to know. Please. So, like, there is a couple, Yeah, like I said, there's a couple of people that worked on the sound in this film. There's going to be some Foley effects department people. There's going to be a supervisor. But then there's also this man named Larry Gruppe who composed the instrumental soundtrack for the film. Mm he's notable for a couple of reasons one because he has a website like he has his own website and it's one of the few things that comes up when you try to google i woke up early the day Mm -hmm. i died because he still has up on his website as a film that he worked on and for a while you could buy the score to this film directly from him and his website which was kind of cool you could also actually speaking of websites the original movie website for this film is findable on Wayback Machine. I did find it. Oh, wow. Once I found it, I then tried to plug it directly into the browser. So if you look up IWokeUpEarly.com, you should be able to find the original website to this film, which is really fun. But Larry Gruppe is going to compose the instrumental soundtrack for this film. Why I bring this up as well is because, like Troll 2, this Score list, the titles of the score list are kind of amazing and really sum up the film. So I'm going to read them in order. Track one, Escape, and then My Kingdom for a Hot Dog, (laughs) My Ears Hurt, Parking Booth Fight, The Bank Job Tango, Scaffold Dream, Cult Waltz and Processional, Caretakers Lament, Cemetery night, and that's night with a K, a K N I G H T. Coppers, journey continues, where's the money? Caretaker's death, mausoleum, the coffin has no money, <laughs> shack attack, purse snatch, desperation, head over heels, torment and woe, journey smoke, long ride home, and then bagpipes of death. <laughs> And that is the score to this film. And I love it. There also, strangely enough, is going to be a soundtrack. So as most people probably know, there's often two different sets of music on a film. There's the score, which is generally the instrumental part that's composed. And then there's the soundtrack, which is the compilation of songs that were taken from other places and compiled into a Mm -hmm. film. And on that soundtrack is going to be a song called Binky Bink, written and performed by Lisa Zane, who is Billy Zane's older sister. Oh, okay. She is a musician, but she actually wrote some of the songs and performed them for Billy Zane's little Ed Wood project. And that also has not been commercially released anywhere Uh, else. So the songs she wrote for this film have not been... So there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff just like that that just kind of keeps going. But fascinating, strange thing, really. All around. Oh, and another person that comes up in these credits, Dottie Dorn, did the editing to this film. And that is going to be later the editor on films like Insomnia and Memento.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: So we've got some people working on this. Man, crazy.
1: Crazy. And yet, despite all of that, despite all those amazing people, this film remains unwatchable, unseeable, unknowable, unloved.
0: Oh my god, also Billy Zane wears a wig in this too, we learn in the final scene, where like, all of a sudden he's got that long shoulder-length hair in like, silhouette, and you're like, you've had long hair this whole time? Like, where has that been? I guess he like, does kind of have some bobby pins in his hair, but... Yeah, Out of nowhere, it's all of a sudden like, whoa, like I don't know, it was jarring, but yeah, sorry, keep, keep going. No, Continue. I was that was
1: basically just me further lamenting that we can't see this thing. I don't know if I feel the same way about this not being seen, like I felt about Don's Plum not being seen because when we talked about that, we did a lament that like Don's Plum you couldn't release it in North America. And to this day, it remains a very unseen film, and we theorize, like, what would it have been like had Don's Plum been seen in North America when it came out?
0: Yeah, this one would have been a cult yeah. film in a way that Don's Plum wouldn't have been.
1: I think so. Had it been seen in a wider area or seen anywhere in North America, it definitely would have yeah, been a cult film, a crazy indie film that all these actors did, and... It deserved cult film status. Like, as it exists now, it's non-existent film status.
0: Yeah, this movie is a joy to watch. Strangely enough, I was not expecting it to be a joy to watch. I
1: know when I brought this film up to you, you're like, are we sure we're going to have anything to say about this film?
0: Well, it was more just that it was so inaccessible to find information about the film's production mm-hmm. that I was worried that we would not be able to find things to annotate because... It is so undocumented, and we really like to have you know our sources fact-checked and stuff. So, top five.
1: My number five. I'm going to give it up to, this is personal, Christina Ricci, because I just always enjoy her. She was, I think one can say, going through a career transitionary time in this. And she was just dealing with some asshole filmmakers around this time. I've read a lot of stories about when she did Buffalo sixty six that Vincent Gallo was a complete asshole to her and kept telling her that she was overweight. Like, this is Christina Ricci to Vincent Gallo, overweight. Like,
0: yeah, Vincent fuck y- It doesn't surprise me that Vincent Gallo would be an asshole to her. Yeah. With,
1: but. I'm not surprised. So like thank you, Christina Ricci. Small role, but fun all the same. Good job. You're number five.
0: Alright, so Honorable Mention goes out to the location scout oh, right for this on. film. Because there are
1: good locations here.
0: They're Yeah, they're really cool just places. Kind of like Joel Schumacher films, they're places that are the alternative places. They're the scaffolding construction sites, and they're graveyards, and they're weird shacks by highways, but all of the locations are very watchable and set up in a very cool production way, where everything is in that... 50s 60s Hollywood way of just having like loans on the side of the wall or just like hot dogs 49 cents we live in this world suddenly within this space that doesn't have brand names right there's just minimalized slimmed down like stuff but my actual fifth goes to the costume and wardrobe department I loved the costuming on this film, not just Billy Zane's outfit, but pretty much just everyone across the board were wearing some really incredible pieces, a lot of great color, a lot of great texture, just a lot of great like time period collisions that were happening. And it was one of my favorite things, oddly, even though I didn't kind of bring it up that much throughout. But yeah, it was one of my favorite just visual things about the film was the clothes.
1: Right on. Who's your number four? My number four is Eartha Kitt, uh, because I love seeing her do anything that she ever does. She is always a joy to watch, just a born entertainer, that woman. And I love the fact that someone probably approached her about this, and she asked, why do you want me to be in this film? Because your name is seen in Ed Wood film very briefly. And the fact that she probably just said yes to that, that is amazing to me. (laughs) She agreed, like, yeah, I'll be in a film because I have a very tenuous connection to Plan 9 from Outer Space. Eh, that works for me. And not only will I be in this film, I'm gonna sing a fucking awesome song for you guys. It's gonna be a good yeah. time.
0: Super rad, lady. You're number four. My number four is the director, Eris Olopoulos. I don't know much about you, man, but you made a film that is very unique and singular and it deserved to be seen and I feel really bad that it wasn't. It's just... It's just cool. It's just super cool. It's got a style. I would have liked to see what else you would have done. That's
1: appropriate. My number three is the director, uh, whose name you pronounced correctly. And you only made one film, man, but what a fucking film this was. My God. like If this is the one mark you want to leave on film history, you done it right. So thank you for this just glorious film. Your number three.
0: My number three is... The music department. I don't know if that's Billy Zane. I don't know if that's <laughs> Groupe. I don't know if that's the other sound designers that were listed on this film. But because this is a no dialogue film, the synchronized sound just becomes everything. Yeah. And the songs that were selected, as well as the score and the Foley sounds, they all just come together to make a really interesting audio landscape that drives the entire visual component of the film. I agree. Who's your number
1: two? Mr. Edward D. Wood Jr. He was a guy who was a passionate storyteller, was committed to making films as quickly as he could, which was sometimes the detriment to his work. But he loved what he did so much and had a passion for storytelling that sadly he was encumbered by, one, his addiction. And his memory it was kind of fucked up because of the way that early tributes to him wins, like I said with the Golden Turkey Awards when they first were talking about him as the worst filmmaker of all time it was really in mean jest and jeering like ha ha look how stupid this guy was but that just wasn't Ed Wood and I wish there were more films like this to show us the wonderful insanity behind his process and his style of storytelling that is not seen rarely ever today so you know just want Ed Wood to be better known and more loved. He deserved it by God.
0: Yeah. Number two, Ed Wood. All right. Many of the same reasons he gives. I don't like it when you know, he gives up. and gives. I gotta go look up some of his pulp porn because I'm aware that it's out there, but I don't think I've ever fully, you know, sat down and really enjoyed a full length Ed Wood novel of the pulp porn variety.
1: Uh, Real quick, I'll go through Rudolph Gray's book. In the back it lists his books. He wrote not books, most of them between 150 to 200 pages. Uh, let's see. Suburbia, Confidential, Nighttime Les, which is about the uh, the outer spheres of sexuality. Bye Bye Brody, The Perverts, The Gay Underworld.
0: Uh, yes, we do have quite the underworld.
1: Sex, Shrouds, and Caskets.
0: Yeah, sounds the fun. The
1: sex executives. Think about it.
0: Oh, puns. The,
1: the Love of the Dead. Uh, that apparently when the back covers just start with all caps, NECROPHILIA!
0: Developing a certain theme yeah. here, for sure. Uh,
1: young, black, and gay.
0: The holy trifecta.
1: Uh, hell chicks. Carnival piece, Mama's diary. And, you know, so forth and so on from there. You you get the idea.
0: Oh, such a subtle art.
1: Well, I have a feeling our number one might be the same person. Just gonna... Take a wild guess at that. Because my number one is Billy goddamn Zane.
0: Fuck yeah, it's Billy goddamn Zane.
1: Billy Zane. Okay, to make this movie is just one thing. I think it's just awesome he had a hand in this. The timing of it is what impresses me the most. Billy had just been in Titanic, that little-known movie that is the most-known movie of all time in 1998 when they were making this thing. And he had star power out the wazoo and really could have done anything. And one thing he decided to do for a month or so in 1998 was make a movie based on a lost Ed Wood script. Yeah. That is stunning to me. And
0: he didn't just star in it. He co-produced yeah. this yeah film. He, he put his own money into put this Put money project. into
1: it. Made this movie happen and put so much of himself and his energy into this performance. It's so wild to me that the decision he was making, and I mean, I applaud it. This is awesome. I'm so happy that he did that. Because of that, we have this movie. So many wild things had to happen to make this movie happen. Ed Wood had to keep writing stuff late in his life. He had to choose to take this one script with him when he was kicked out of his apartment. His widow had to choose to sell the rights to it. Billy Zane had to bring enough star power to get funding for this thing to make it happen, and... I had to find some shady website that was selling this movie to watch it. So, God, just for the flip of a coin, luck of the draw, I don't know, whatever the hell to call it. It's just, this movie's amazing. I'm so happy, and Billy Zane is the reason that it happened. Thank you, Billy Zane. Do this more often. Please, find another Ed Wood script to make. This is so amazing. Yes. You're number one.
0: Yeah. I mean, Billy Billy Zane, goddamn Zane, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Billy goddamn I know his Zane. middle name I mean, is not
1: Goddamn, but Billy Goddamn Zane.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love Billy Zane in anything he appears in. There's just something about the natural charisma of that dude, but there's something elevated about his performance in this because it is this interesting expressionism silent era filmmaking type yeah. of performance. There's something a little Charlie Chaplin, something a little Buster mm-hmm. Keaton about it as well. It's a cool weird mix of an embodied performance. And yeah, this movie should be seen because there aren't enough independent films out there. So our safe word really isn't actually all that safe of a place today. (laughs) But I figured it would be the one word that would not come up (laughs) when talking about this film, because this film certainly was not a blockbuster. I used to do lots of
1: things. things
0: and Jesus, I was evil. Take things and break things and Jesus, I was evil. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism! Space!